What's up, y'all? Hope everybody is well. All right. As you know, it is February 10th. All right. We are doing our thing. So welcome to the Onyx Report. Okay. Looks like we are going well. We are on... Um, let's see. We are on uh, Facebook. We are on... YouTube, we are on Twitch, and we are trying to come through on Instagram, but it is saying it has got a questionable connection, so it's reconnecting. So I hope everybody's well. We're here to get into it and try and figure out uh, some things that uh, I think are are on the table that we need to go ahead and knock out. Uh, so first off, let me greet some of you that are here. Uh, Malika, what's going on? Damon, what's happening, man? Marvin? Uh, Miss Khalila, good to see you as usual. Rashid, uh, Barry, what's happening? Hope everybody is doing well. Let me see. All right. Oh, okay. It looks like uh, yeah, Instagram keeps tripping, but not sure what that is. All right. So we're going to go ahead and get started nevertheless. Yeah, I don't know how I go. There we go. Instagram just kicked in and went out again. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Anyway. Uh, salute to everybody that's in here that's doing your thing. I uh, appreciate the support. And speaking of which, uh, I like to go ahead and, uh, you know, request that you continue to support uh, the Onyx Report. And I'd like to do that first by honoring those that do. But in case you didn't know, this is the Onyx Report where we uplift Black men and boys using critical analysis. And uh, we uh, start that uplift by first acknowledging those who have been in support uh, of the channel the whole time. So let's go ahead and do that. Um, here we go. All right, just to check, could you guys hear any music with that? Looks like everything is a little paused here. It's strange. Looks like, I mean, this is weird. I can't seem to get on Instagram for some reason, and uh, what seems to be going on YouTube is slow. Okay, now I'm seeing people come through. All right, so you could hear it. All right, beautiful. So uh, we will go ahead and continue from here. Not completely sure what some of these issues I'm having are, but they are happening. Um, and it wouldn't be wouldn't be a normal day if this wasn't kicking in in some way, shape, or form. I don't know what to say. So that said, you know, it is what it is. Y'all know. Uh, these are the kind of days where you could just 
you know, kind of expect that this is how I go. Um, let me see here. I don't, and I do apologize. It's just a number of weird things going on and it's starting to bother me. Anyway, um, support the channel. You can do so, uh, as you can see on the screen, through um, Cash App, through uh, PayPal, through Venmo, through uh, Patreon. You can also do th so through Super Chat right here on YouTube. So please make sure you do that uh, as we try and get things going here. Um, all right. And we will get to it right here. Man, this is strange. This is a, one of those days, people. So as I said, there's many ways to become a supporter. You can go ahead and look right there on YouTube and you can click the join button right next to the subscribe button and uh, go from there and support the show. Um, and we can keep things moving uh, as we try to do. We got a lot to go through tonight and I think this is gonna be a good one. Um, I have some, some things I definitely want to put on the table, uh, and I think that they will be of use to like-minded brethren um, who believe in what I believe, and that goes for the ladies, too, if you uh, have the inclination. I think I'll have some things for you tonight that will be of use uh, to kind of help you uh, frame where we're coming from <clears throat> and best explain why we do what we do, all right? So shout out to those who are in support. Um, and we should be able to go from there. Appreciate that, Kwaku, for joining. Good to have you become a member. That's what we need. All right. Um, and we will start with our Sacred Black Masculine series. A number of you reached out to me on this uh, particular issue. Um, I'm going to try Instagram one last time. And then I'm going to call it a day if I can't get a strong connection. Uh, Rashid, appreciate the cash out. Cash out. And considering I just updated my internet, I'm low-key pissed off that this is not working the way I wanted to. But nevertheless, uh, we need to go ahead and start with the Sacred Black Masculine series in proper form uh, because we have a number of brothers that need to be shouted out. And the Sacred Black Masculine series is basically a series that I created that acknowledges black men who, although I argue do things every day like this, uh, nevertheless exemplify the whole concept of the sacred masculine. Now, that basically means that um, how we define manhood uh, is not limited to the stereotypes we've gotten from popular media. If anything, it includes a humanity that has always been the case, but has seldom been acknowledged, particularly in regard to black men. So the Sacred Black Masculine series is just an acknowledgement uh, for brothers who exemplify that humanity and the capacity to support, uh, lead, and even sacrifice themselves for the betterment of others, particularly those who cannot do uh, for themselves, right? Um, 89 people here. Again, like, share, subscribe, support the channel, right? So this particular piece, as we can see here, um, title of the article you can find on abcnews.go.com, kidnapped 10-year-old saved by two sanitation workers on a pickup route. Those are the two gentlemen on the left, as you can see, and the one who actually kidnapped a young girl is pictured on the right. Uh, I believe his name is Michael R. Surreal. Uh, but these two Louisiana sanitation workers are being hailed as heroes 
for saving a 10 year old girl who had been abducted from a family's family member's home. The girl, Jaleesa LaSalle, had gone missing from a family member's new Iberia home Sunday between one and two. According to the, the uh, new Iberia police department, investigators initially believed she was in imminent danger. An Amber alert detailing a gray 2012 Nissan Altima that Jaleesa had last been seen getting into was issued uh, in the middle of the night. Uh, Pelican Waste and Debris workers in, uh, named Dion Merrick and Brandon Antoine knew something was amiss when they spotted a silver sedan in the middle of the field about 20 miles away in St. Parish, St. Martin Parish while on their trash pickup route Monday morning. Um, uh, Crispus, appreciate the cash app support. Uh, something told me, um, Merrick said, um, I said, what's that car doing off the feet off in the field like that? They then used the garbage truck to block the car from escaping and call the police. Uh, I blocked the truck and making sure he couldn't get out. Uh, so from there they saved, uh, this young black girl, right? So interesting because I've, you know, been hearing, least on YouTube for the last few years that black men don't do such things. They're not heroic. They don't sacrifice for people. They don't care about kids. They don't care about wives. I even heard in grad school classes that they don't care about being fathers. These were graduate school classes in African-American studies. You let that process, right? You let that kind of marinate in your head and tell me where you go with that. Those were the kind of things that I was being taught while every day seeing black men doing things that were going ignored. And this is no different. Appreciate that support, D-Rock. Thank you. Right. Um, So, you know, these kind of situations are not new, despite that they're treated as such. Um, And, you know, people tend to be somewhat oblivious to that for some strange reason. Right. So, you know, that's the first thing. And uh, we need to kind of go from there. Uh, So support to these two young brothers. Appreciate them doing what they did. Um, But this is another story I thought needed some attention too, right? This is a young brother who uh, is doing some amazing work. And I thought that I would go ahead and uh, allow the story to speak for itself. Although... Oh, wow. Seems that StreamYard has erased a couple of things. So this is this. And I'm telling you, when I first started looking into doing YouTube videos, the people I really like listening to made this stuff look easy. And I am going to tell you it is not. Uh, There's a lot of moving. So let's start with a review. There's nothing unusual about Marcus Flynn's fifth grade science lesson today. Do I eat chili with sugar? No. But the fact that he's the one teaching it is pretty rare. And there's very few black teachers. Nationally, only 2% of teachers are black men. In the state of Minnesota, it's even worse. So I figured if I want to make the biggest impact, have the biggest benefit on my community, best place for me to do is in the classroom. And for Flynn, the classroom is just the start. He's also the executive director of Black Men Teach, an organization focused on building a pipeline for creating and retaining black teachers. People like Keith Durham, a junior at Hamlin University and member of Black Men Teach. In my head, like being from Minnesota, a teacher is um, an older Caucasian lady. Durham, who grew up in St. Paul and Woodbury, says he never liked school. But looking back, he thinks it's because no one understood what he was going through outside of the classroom. When I was in second grade, my dad 
went to prison, it would have been a big, a big push for me to actually focus on school and somebody to tell me like, you don't need to just play basketball or be a rapper. Like there's actual jobs out here that are in need of your services. It's hard to make an argument that there's anything more important to the success of black students than black teachers. The impact is tangible. Research shows that students who have two black male teachers in elementary school are 32% more likely to enroll in college. One black teacher by third grade can decrease the likelihood of a student dropping out of high school by almost 40%. Relationships are so important in education, and I think that's the thing we have to focus on. And those relationships are important for white students as well. Students who don't identify as black, it helps them rethink their understanding of what black men are in society. Just having that simple saying of you can do it and you can achieve something, I think does tremendous work. It creates generational change, generational impact. All right, y'all, it's time to go. I'm going to start booting y'all. Aaron Hassanzada, WCCO 4 News. Suhail, go ahead. So uh, tell me, could you guys hear that? That was the first time I used that particular feature. So um, I'm hoping you guys could hear it okay. Anybody tell me? Just let me know in the chat real quick if you guys could hear it all right. Anybody? I think YouTube has uh has me on some kind of slow mode. So okay, good. Yeah. See they're they're slowing down the comments and everything, so they're coming in bunches. What's up, Artisan? Good to see you in here. Um, good, appreciate it. So shout out to this young man. Uh, black men teach. Um, definitely support it if you can. Like I said, brothers are out here. We are doing work, but much of the time it doesn't get acknowledged um, and it doesn't put on, it's not often put on the platform it needs to be put on. Uh, but even when it, it is, it can it can kind of come and go real quick. So we actually have to take a moment to acknowledge when these kind of things happen. So shout out uh, on in regard to those two things, right? So let's go ahead and transition further, right? Um, Okay, so we go ahead and uh, check out some of these special shout outs we got going this week. Uh, a couple of things that I thought deserved some acknowledgement, right? Uh, first off, uh, we have a piece by a good, a good colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Travis Harris. And this is a blog piece that he, that he did. Well, actually, it's an, a magazine article piece that he did on DominicMag.com. Uh, definitely support Dominic Mag. Uh, it's D-O-M-I-N-I-Q-U-E-M-A-G. Com. Um, Dominic was the first to do a piece on the launching of the Institute for Black Male Studies. So I am definitely a fan and I want to I uh, want you all to support his magazine. Uh, this is a brother doing some brilliant work, especially in regard to black men. But in this particular piece, Dr. Travis Charis, put up Travis Harris, excuse me, uh, wrote a piece Friday, January 29th, where he talked about his experiences healing from black feminism. And that is the title of the article, Forgiveness and Healing from Black Feminism. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will read some choice elements of it. Uh, he says, when I first started learning about it, and I think he's talking about black feminism and intersectionality, uh, it was new and exciting because I was a new grad student. I was on the way to becoming a doctor. I wanted to be smart. I needed to uh, queer my analysis and be fully inclusive of black women, LG LGBTQIA folk, and individuals with disabilities. I, I was challenged 
I appreciate that. So welcome to the brotherhood. Show me. Um, he said, I was challenged to deal with my sexism and my role in perpetuating it. Honestly, as a black man raised by a single mother, I rocked it. I rock with it. Uh, the biggest thing that hit me the hardest was how they talked about black men, though. I posted about my conference experiences on Facebook at these academic conferences, presentations after presentation, said that black men were blamed and made out to be the oppressors. Uh, repeatedly, they were putting down black men. It seemed that black men became the punching bags, whipping posts, scapegoats, and poster children of all black women's problems and issues. While being a graduate student attending these conferences and hearing how black men were the problem, I was always treated uh, in similar fashion. So uh, check out this article. Uh, and it does explain the experiences of many, I would argue, uh, black male uh, PhDs, right? This, this you know, kind of took over as a trend, especially in the last 15 years. And I can speak to the same thing. I attended not only black conferences, but black conferences in Africana studies. And I can tell you it, what I started to do probably about six years ago, I actually started to count. I'd go through the programs and count the number of lectures that focused on black men and focused on black women. And it would, it would range from eight, eight to one to 10 to one, you know, in terms of the number of presentations and the demographics of the conference were about the same, but the uptick in the feminism of these conferences and the focus was one of the things that got to me. And just like Dr. Harris is talking about, the idea that black men were the problem seemed to be a running theme, even though, and you'll see this later in the broadcast, we talk about some other things, there, were, there was often no data presented. It was much, mostly anecdotal, opinion-based, uh, and yet somehow there was this cross-the-board agreement that black men were the problem. And if you yourself wanted to advance you had to find some way to either not challenge that or support it wholeheartedly. And that, that applied especially, and it still seems to, for many of the black male graduate students I run across, many of them contact me per year asking under the table if I'll either be on their PhD committees or if I can help them navigate, because usually they're dealing with um, some kind of feminist, uh, black feminist uh, board or black feminist um, uh, dissertation committee members that they cannot get around having who are ardently, you know, misandrist in how they, how they present. And many of these young brothers are stuck dealing with them and have to appeal to them if they want to graduate. And when you become a faculty person up until you get tenure, you got to do the same kind of thing. And the hardest point is actually getting hired because many of these committees are filled with black feminists that will first and foremost sidestep you to find a female feminist than a male feminist. And if you don't necessarily present yourself as having an opinion on gender, you're kind of at the bottom of the pile. But if by any means you advocate for black males, it's a problem. Appreciate the support, Mahir. Um, Thank you. Um, so this ends up becoming an issue that affects the pipeline for that. The, uh, the unfatable, appreciate that support. It affects the pipeline and it makes it difficult uh, for black men to navigate into the academy and even advocate for other black men, right? So this becomes a problem. And it's a consistent one. So shout out uh, to uh, Dr. Harris for putting this piece forth. Support the piece. Uh, support Dominic Mag. And let's move further. Right? Like I said, we got a lot to cover. Um, there we go. Okay. Some of you have seen this particular one, this piece that was out. Right. This is uh, shotblack.us. Uh, and this particular um, shout out goes to these two brothers, uh, now, I know I'm going to mispronounce at least one of their names, but it looks like Song Laurent and Dave Salvant, right? And this is a, uh, this is in, uh, 
I guess they're saying Squire, the Black-owned uh, barbershop app, is now valued at $250 million, right? In June, we reported that Squire, a Black-owned barbershop app and management platform, raised $34 million. On Wednesday, they announced another raise of $59 million in, round, in a round led by Iconic Capital. Uh, with the new financing, Squire has almost tripled its valuation, up from $85 million in June to $250 million today. They plan on using most of the capital to hire new sales and marketing professionals. Uh, according to LinkedIn, to a LinkedIn post uh, from co-founder Song Larone, uh, they are looking for a VP of marketing to build out our marketing de department and help us continue to fuel our rapid growth. The app, which was first developed to help customers book appointments, has evolved and added features such as payroll management, inventory tracking, and automatic rent collection for the barbers leasing chairs. Squires also help barbers, uh, barbershops navigate COVID-related uh, restrictions by allowing customers to book and pay for appointments using its mobile app and by creating a virtual waiting room, which le lets patrons wait on uh, or lets patrons wait outside or in their cars and enter only when they receive an automatic notification that their barber is ready for them. That's tight. According to TechCrunch, Squires' revenue went from zero in March when all barbershops closed to between 10 and 20 million in ARR. Uh, just 10 months later, right? So that is Squire. Uh, check that out. Shout out to these brothers uh, for building that. Hopefully we'll be able to see uh, that progress. And uh, I'm also hoping that they'll be able to help some others get on board, right? You know, particularly uh, whether it's black marketing, uh, you know, execs or whatever, or barbers, hell. Uh, I, I hope this will, the app will help. And I hope the capital they've raised, uh, they'll be able to use to expand, uh, expand the capital of black business or the, the, the uh, framework for black business. So shout out to them, All right? Uh, yeah, a little bit of a sad one on this one. Shout out to one Leon Spinks who passed away at 67 years old uh, a couple days ago. Former heavyweight champion Leon Spinks, best known for de defeating Muhammad Ali in 1978, has died at the age of 67. Uh, according to a statement from his publicist, Spinks lost his five-year battle with prostate and other cancers on Friday evening. Look, um, I want to shout him out. I want to acknowledge him. Um, you know, Spinks is somebody I remember seeing as a kid in the ring. Um, you know, uh, to be honest, I wasn't sure he would make it to 67 just in terms of how he was living in the 80s. But, he's, he, you know, he did. I wish him well. I wish his family well. But I will say this, especially to my brothers, please get uh, pre-screened, you know, uh, for cancer in particular, uh, uh, checked out in regard to your prostate. Uh, these are things that we avoid. Um, there are tests for these kind of things. They're, they're not hard to get hold of, but I would highly recommend you do so. And I say that knowing that I at times drag my feet as well. So I'm not suggesting this in any way. Uh, as if it's not something I don't understand and I haven't done myself, but I do currently have uh, a colon cancer test in my home that I'm going to do and send out. So make sure you do those things if you are at all able, uh, because if they can catch it early, there are definitely things that can be done uh, as opposed to finding out when it's way too late. Uh, so please make sure you get checked out, you stay on top of it, particularly after you get you know to 35, 40 years old, when you get in that range, you really need to start getting different things checked out, most particularly colon, prostate, so on and so forth. So please make sure you get on top of that and shout out to Leon Spinks um, 
And, uh, you know, like I said, um, condolences to his family. I wish him well. Uh, indeed, Adam, boxing legend. Um, but anyway, you know, yeah, sad to hear it. Um, on another tip, uh, which is a, probably a little, little more upbeat, um, if you go to theroot.com, they have an article entitled Morehouse College to Offer Online Program for Black Men who have college credits but no degree, right? The school announced on Tuesday that Morehouse Online will go live this summer and will have three initial course offerings. The service is designed specifically for men who have some college experience under their belt and want to complete their degrees, uh, which the Census Bureau estimates is over 3 million Black men. The program will be open to uh, open both to former Morehouse students as well as men who went to other universities, and the school hopes to bring back at least 500 Morehouse men over the next five years. David A. Thomas, president of Morehouse College, told the Post that the idea came after speaking to former alumni at events who said they didn't finish and would like to, but simply didn't have the ability to put their life on hold to finish their education, right? So, yo. For those of you out there that are in that situation, you didn't complete, you got a few, you, you know, you got a few classes left. Uh, and I don't know how many you need to have. I don't know where the line is, but it's definitely worth checking out. So reach out, go to Morehouse uh, online, of course, do some research and then, you know, maybe even contact them directly and find out. But I would I would definitely urge people that if you can take advantage of this opportunity, please do so. As you guys know, on my show, we talk a lot about resources available to black men and it is staggering how few there seem to be. So when something like this pops up, uh, I, def I definitely think it's worth sharing. So please make sure you do, all right? Check out Morehouse uh, online and see uh, if it's something that you can use, right? So definitely shout out to them for that. It's much appreciated, right? Now, this one here, uh, Lawrence Fishburne to receive Lifetime Achievement Award at SCAD, a TV fest. I don't know what that, I don't know how to pronounce that. I don't know if I got that right or wrong. But this is a Variety.com article. And it says the Blackish star and executive producer is only the second actor to receive the honor from the Savannah College of Art and Design, SCAD, after Felicia Rashad was awarded the comparable outstanding achievement in television prize during the inaugural edition of the festival in 2013. Uh, a star on screen and stage, Fishburne began his acting career working in TV, landing a role on One Life to Live at age 10. Uh, in, in the more than four decades since, Fishburne has starred in CSI, Hannibal, Tribeca, uh, from which he won his uh, first primetime Emmy in 93. Uh, he won his second Emmy as executive producer and star of Miss Evers Boys, earned an NAACP Image Award and Global, Golden Globe and Emmy nominations for his work uh, in the Tuskegee Airmen. Um, and of course we know his work and, uh, and a number of other ventures like the matrix. Um, they don't ever talk about cornbread early me, but <laughs> shout out to Lawrence Fishburne, uh, much, you know, appreciating, uh, them acknowledging the brother, uh, who definitely deserves it. I'm a fan of his work. I appreciate it. Um, so, you know, uh, strangely enough, um, you know, there's still not much said about, <laughs> The piece he did on, uh, never mind, I'm not going to go there. I don't feel like bringing that energy in, uh, that Tina Turner film or whatever. I don't know if he still catches the flack that Danny Glover gets for his role in Color Purple, but it was definitely one of those roles that people do not forget. All right.
right, Cynthia, you know what I'm talking about. Cornbread. That's what's up. That's where I saw him first, you know. Um, but yeah, and I appreciate that, Adams. You know, so Adam mentioned some of the other ones that uh, that just popped up uh, that they didn't they didn't talk about. Right, higher learning. I definitely remember his role in higher learning. Uh, hell, I remembered the point where I was just like uh, the star of the film, higher learning, as an undergrad student. And then I remember the point where I realized I became the professor in the film. So it was an interesting transition for me, and I appreciate works like that that kind of uh, frame our lives. Okay, so nevertheless, uh, we are now uh, transitioning to some of our current events. And as usual, I got a few things that, uh, you know, will likely slap you in the face. Y'all know how I do. So we can start out with this one. This is an article you can find on clicktohouston.com, right? Cynthia, you're absolutely right. I didn't even say boys in the hood. Didn't even say boys in the hood, you know. The moment where he actually became, you know, this perennial black father, much like James Evans and a few others in those choice positions, boys in the hood, no doubt. This article, um, however, will definitely make you a little whatever. It's entitled uh, Mother Accused of Threatening to Kill Two-Year-Old Son with an Electric Drill. Now, I told you all last year there's going to be a lot more of these crazy pieces, mainly um, due to the environment, the pressures people are facing. It's going to bring some things out. Uh, definitely the need for uh, mental health improvement, support, so on and so forth. Things are going to get crazy for real, right? So police say Amy Tangu was with her two-year-old son at a community pool on Sunday, even when she completely, what the hell? Oh, okay. Um, on Sunday evening, when she completely undressed the boy at a community pool, right? When witnesses asked her to put clothes on her son, she ran from the pool. Witnesses called the police who went to her apartment. When officers arrived at the apartment, she was holding a drill to her son's head and was threatening to kill him. Uh, the officers, of course, grabbed her, tackled her, took the drill. I don't know about the tackling part, but they grabbed her um, and took the boy from her arms. Uh, she was then arrested and charged with endangering a child. Uh, the boy was put in child protective services. It's not known what will happen to him. Right now, y'all know I, I put these kind of things up one, you know, to acknowledge, um, you know, what's going on during this pandemic, what's going on in terms of the impact it's having on families uh, and especially in regard to black males. But I also do this because um, Adam, appreciate you becoming, uh, becoming a member, man. Um, I also do it. To also point out that as much as we've um, we've been hyper focused upon as black men for whatever um, crimes are committed and so on and so forth, there's a an obliviousness to female aggressors, whether it be on sexual grounds or even in terms of uh, rearing children. Uh, there is an obliviousness that tends to happen, um, and so I point it out because this is very real, and especially when it impacts uh, black boys and men. So in this particular instance, you got a two-year-old boy whose own mother threatens to kill him with an electric drill, right? The difficulty of dealing with these situations is astronomical at this point, but it's insane. So all I can say is if you're witness to something like this, definitely uh, get involved, maybe not directly. I don't want to push anybody to, into a situation where you get hurt, but uh, sometimes... You got to call in support, particularly when the kids need it. 
So, um, you know, just like I said, when they, he, she embarrassed the boy at the pool, made him strip naked at a community pool and then took him home and threatened to kill him. That kind of thing you need to call for support on. Right. So keep an eye out for that kind of thing. Next up, this was an exchange that took place on Facebook that I wanted to acknowledge. What's up, Black Uru? I see you in here. Um, um, so as you can see, um, what they're talking about here, this is a post uh, where a woman says, okay, I need y'all's honest opinions. She said, so I was being a hot girl last year and got pregnant. The guy who I thought was the father of my child signed my daughter's birth certificate. We got a DNA test done and it, come, it came back when she was about six weeks old that he wasn't the father. Ever since then, I've been trying to get him to turn the paperwork in since I legally can't do it for him. My daughter is now six months old and I'm trying to get a voucher for her to go to daycare. In the state of Florida, the father has to be on child support in order for you to get the help you need. Am I wrong for giving him until the end of the month to turn it in or I'm going to file for child support? Um, you know, and then of course you can see the response from somebody in her comments saying, do not listen to the people telling you to take the L because they will not pay for your childcare. Um, he isn't doing what he needs to do to get himself out of the situation. So do what you need to uh, and get what you need for your kid. All right. This is on the nicer end to some of the situations I've seen like this because she at least asked the question, but I've seen other cases where in predatory fashion, uh, women in these situations who even knew that the man wasn't the father uh, didn't even ask the question. Is that to suggest that that's somehow all women? No. But I am saying uh, overall, I think we do have a kind of practice of obliviousness when it comes to men, in particularly uh, in, in particular to this kind of um, disposability, this interchangeability of black men uh, as fathers, as, as suitors, as uh, boyfriends, as husbands. Uh, we have a culture of that, I believe, particularly in the black community, uh, where, you know, there are many who wouldn't even ask the question because men are interchangeable and they don't matter in a certain respect. So, you know, look out for this, be very careful, you know, strap it up best you can do whatever you need to do to protect yourself, fellas, because there are people out there that really don't care if you're the father or not. And this is why uh, we advocate here for getting DNA testing done. It, it is what it is, fellas. Um, please be careful out there uh, because as I said, this kind of thing, happens and it isn't uh there isn't always uh, a care for how this impacts you and 18 years of child support especially for a child that's not yours yo all right so let me let me just get through this one quickly um this is not a film review this is a new film that's out malcolm and marie um uh starring zendaya and john david washington um and basically, look, I didn't watch the film. I'm not planning on watching it. I'm not telling you not to watch it. And, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I believe in supporting black film. So if you don't have an objection to it, please support it and do so for me. But look, I saw the trailer. It was a long trailer. Of, well, it was a trailer about what seems to be a long night of arguing back and forth, right? And when you've been through this shit enough times in real life, you don't want to sit down and 
pay for a movie where you got to watch two people do it. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't. I just don't have the energy. <laughs> you know, I finally got into a place in my life in my mid 40s where my day is peace. You know what I mean? From when I wake up to when I go to bed, I am in a drama free, you know, zone. Literally, there is I, I really am tempted to put a sign on my door. There's no drama allowed on my property. So even watching this film trailer was just kind of gave me some flashbacks about all night arguments over nothing. But so I'm just putting this out there. I can't do that shit. So if somebody's willing to watch it, you can tell me if I missed something. Appreciate it. But, yo, at some point, you know, I, you know, I would actually like to see a film about a black male who is happy. Wouldn't that be a revolutionary idea? A black man who is actually happy. And I don't particularly care, you know, if he's if he's a high value man, if he's, a, you know, a student in school, I don't care. But I actually want to see a film where you, you don't have to walk into it gritting your teeth. That's one of the things I noticed even as a kid, like even, black movies were stressful, <laughs> like even in the 80s, <laughs> I remember, I remember one of the first ones I actually saw. It was like Penitentiary, <laughs> one of Mr. T's earliest roles, and I was just like, I, I don't even know what this is, but it's stressful. I don't it, look at some point, you know. It's we got to be able to have some peace and some happiness, and I can't really. When I think about it, I really can't think of how many films I've seen, you know, where a brother actually was in, enjoying his existence. You know what I mean? I can't really think of too many. So just putting that out there to all you writers, uh, it would be nice to have some shit where a brother isn't going through hell. And I mean, you know, like I said, the the trailer alone gave me flashbacks. I was like, you know, I I think I'm still suffering from some form of PTSD behind behind that mess. Uh, Cold type says it was a long night of arguing and toxicity with indirect shots at black directors. Okay. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, MLR agreeableness would be nice. And I can't say I've seen a lot of that, let alone anything beyond it. So it would just be nice to see some real, like, chill, you know, stuff that doesn't have to be, like, tense and stressed out and whatever. Anyway, just, I just had to put that out there because this, that, man, I literally had a reaction watching the trailer. I'm serious. <laughs> I can't do it. Um, so. Now, this is one, you're talking about Coming to America 2. And I finally saw the full long trailer for it, you know, because prior to that, they released, you know, a little quick trailer. And, and, you know, this is one I can say, I won't say I was waiting for it because I didn't really think it was going to happen. But when I found out that it was, I was excited. I enjoyed the first one. You know, it was hilarious. I love Eddie Arsenio. You know, uh, their ability to play multiple characters requires incredible skill. Um, You know, so I appreciate all of that. But I saw a trailer for it. And. uh, Yeah, man, the gynocentrism has definitely got to a whole nother uh, series. It it has. Uh, So in this one, one of the things that, that I remembered is, you know, he had daughters. He finds out he has a son back in New York with. The character played by what's her name, Leslie Jones from Saturday Night Live. Yeah, that was. Uh, I don't know. I don't know on that one, but um, 
the son seems to be kind of buffoonish. It is what it is. I mean, this is, you know, it's a comedy. I get it. But in this particular setting, you know, they're talking about who's going to replace him at the throne. And there's this big question why it has to be a male versus a female. So they're going, you know, so it's the typical kind of feminist narrative, which threw me, you know, but it is what it is. So this is what this is what I'm just saying is, is on the table as far as this is concerned. It's, you know, another venture even. And this was funny to me, even in a fictitious <laughs> Wakanda, this is pre-Wakanda. Like this, this what we saw going on and coming to to America preceded. Uh, well, it didn't precede it in the comic books, but definitely on the screen. Um, and yet, even here, we got to fight the patriarchy because you know, black men, no matter where they are, are the problem. So here we go. And uh, it's I, it's exhausting to me. Is the because I see so much of the same narrative in a lot of what I'm watching these days and I'm these days, I mean like in the last decade. So, um, but I'm sad to see it here to what extent. I don't know. Obviously I haven't seen it completely, uh, but watch the trailer, you know, at your own discretion, you tell me what you see, go ahead and put it in the comments. But um, it looks to me like this kind of feminist guys got, you know, uh, gynocentrism has uh, kind of overrun so many different projects, so many different series, uh, so many different contexts. I mean, from employment to media to policy, there's such a central focus um, to women and girls uh, to the extent that boys and men, especially in the Black community, have become somewhat oblivious. Uh, And so now we're seeing it in projects that are actually led by Black men. And of course, a lot of this has to do with catering to the female dollar, right? We know that statistically speaking, women tend to consume media to greater degrees than men. Uh, and we know in the black community, at least until COVID, I'm waiting for you know COVID data. Uh, and I'm told it may be a number of months until we really get to see what 2020 looks like in different contexts. But you know, at least up until COVID, uh, black women tended to be employed more consistently than black men. Um, so by that logic, you know, it's understandable that so many different industries since the eighties have been targeting, uh, women and girls. And, you know, as in terms of finding this, this new gold mine of resources, and that's, what's behind a lot of this gynocentrism. It isn't a value judgment that's based on a moral reflection on, you know, the degree to which women and girls have been oppressed by all men across the board. It's really, you know, a dollar thing, but it nonetheless shapes the media, which in turn impacts how people see the world and how people engage each other. Um, and so again, you know, and you guys have heard me say this repeatedly, when you have a 12 year old son who can say he's never seen a boy or a man beat a woman or a girl at anything in media, uh, that's a problem, right? Because it undermines the capability of boys and men, and it really dismisses their importance in society, Right. And I think people are starting to figure out slowly how important boys and men actually are. If you actually go, uh, you know, there's an article I'm not going to cover, but my boy Gigi already did. um, And he's looking at China and China is actually developing programs to support young men and really reinstitute masculinity in some way, shape or form, because it's been so attacked. But again, the attack, especially when it's coming from a policy standpoint, is way more detrimental than just a bunch of people standing around talking about they don't like men. We're talking policy. We're talking, you know, in the academy, it's almost become a religion to dismiss, undermine, 
and denigrate black men and boys. Shout out Mlavo, appreciate the support. Um, hope I pronounced that right. You know, so uh, at the end of the day, there's more of this uh, on the horizon. So I'm just alerting you, alerting you to how some of your favorite uh, series uh, might be dealing with more of this than you might have suspected, right? So just to put it out there, it is what it is. Now, for my comic book heads, I'm about to take you back to the 1970s, right? This was a comic that came out when I was a kid, and it was a supersized comic. Like, like it might have been, I mean, it was, I don't know, 15, 17 inches tall. Like, it was, it was, it was a supersized comic. And as a black male and a boy in the 1970s, my hero, uh, one of several, but definitely one of my biggest heroes was Muhammad Ali. I even had like a 13 inch Muhammad Ali doll, you know, um, I loved Ali, man. And so I also watched cartoons as anybody else. I watched Superman and so on and so forth. And I enjoyed Superman as a character, never processed in my mind, these two in the same universe at all. So then something interesting happened. This came out. And even as a kid, it knocked me on my behind because it brought two heroes that I had into the same space um, and showed me what I would have thought impossible, right? Muhammad Ali knocked out Superman. Blew my mind, right? What I found out much later was that in doing this comic, the Nation of Islam sat down with DC Comics because they were concerned about the representation of Ali and by extension, black men. So in this particular story, they took away Superman. You actually see Muhammad Ali and Superman. I think they were walking around Harlem. I think it was. And, uh, you know, Ali was uh, signing autographs or whatever. They get together, start talking. Then they're whisked off to an alien world and forced to fight. I think they had to represent Earth. Artisan knows this better than I do because uh, I haven't read it in a while. But anyway, uh, they took away Superman's powers and put him in the ring with Ali. And one person could represent Earth. So they had to actually fight it out. And then from there, the winner would take on this alien menace in the ring. And Ali kicked the crap out of him. And I just, I was blown away seeing this, right? Very interesting thing. Why does this come to mind? Well, aside from me being a, an unapologetic geek, you know, well, here's another couple of clips there. If you didn't see it, interesting. You know what this does to a black boy? Like, it's just like, what? What? Anyway. Something came out eh, about a week, week and a half ago, I think it was. Appreciate the support, Barry. Um, yeah. So uh, a new film came out, animated piece called Batman Soul of the Dragon. And basically, this is a this is a Batman movie, which is kind of set in the aesthetics of the 70s, right? Uh, so if you remember the comics, everything from his costume to afros and bell bottoms, it's all kind of set with a 70s feel to it, right? Um, and so in it, you get to see a young Bruce Wayne, right? Training, uh, learning the martial arts. Because if you don't remember the story of Bruce Wayne, Wayne Batman, he actually, uh, he actually, as a young man, after seeing his parents killed, decides to go all around the world learning from the most elite masters in a variety of things, from everything from martial arts to lock picking. You know, he goes all around the world to train himself to become the perfect warrior detective so on and so forth what's up bgs got bgs here art of it here good to see y'all here 
Um, so in one of his ventures, when he goes to learn, uh, you know, another level of Kung Fu uh, from a particular master, he comes into contact with a character who would become Bronze Tiger, which is, you know, is a known character in DC Comics. But the character was actually played by Michael Jai White. Uh, so again, it's an animated piece, but still. Um, <laughs> I see you, Artisan. <laughs> and in this piece, Bruce Wayne got the ass kicking that I never thought I would see him get in all my lifetime. <laughs> it was, thank you, Shadow Dog. And it was hilarious because, you know, Michael J- J- White is right there voicing it. And it was ridiculous, man. It was it was as bad as what I just showed you with Clark Kent <laughs> in the ring with Muhammad Ali. It was that bad. <laughs> and there was no point in the film where even later, you know, because this was obviously set in the past. So when they come to the present, they didn't refight and, and Batman win. No, not at all. <laughs> that was just an L. That he had to keep. And so it was funny to me that from Superman to Batman, the, the two elite superheroes, you have this record of black male characters who actually, you know, were able to dominate. But, you know, you really didn't see a whole lot after that, you know, for either one of them, as far as uh, comics were concerned. But a uh, beautiful moment. So <laughs> for those of you with sons, uh, you might want to share some of this with them just because. Uh, I found it, you know, mind blowing and inspirational as a child to know uh, that, you know, there were even black males that had a martial martial arts uh, background, let alone a level of mastery. I mean, that wasn't something I came into direct contact with until early 2000s. I trained in Sanukis Ru for a while. I did Gracie Jiu Jitsu in the early 90s when that first hit L.A., but then I, I did some training in Sanukis Ru Jiu-Jitsu, early 2000. Shout out to uh, Professor Urban Muhammad. Um, but I found out this legacy of black martial artists that were incredible and still are, you know, but they don't get a whole lot of uh, acknowledgement. So, um, oh, Brian, you said uh, Jai White plays Bronze Tiger in one of the DC live action shows, too. All right. Let me know which, which one that is, because I hadn't seen that. Um, Bronze Tiger and Lady Shiva are the best fighters. Right? Lady Shiva was there. She was in the story too, John. If you hadn't seen it. But anyway, yeah, check that out. And and if you haven't, um, you know, connect your, your sons with this legacy of black martial artists, right? This martial tradition is powerful. So go ahead and check it out. These brothers have been doing work for decades, but they don't get the kind of uh, press that others do. So uh, not only in the comics, but also in reality. These brothers have, have been incredible for a long time. So go check them out, support them, take your sons in to learn. Uh, and if you're not in an area where you can directly access it, at least support them online, research them, find out more about them. Because there's actually a long legacy of black martial artists who've been doing some incredible work um, and have never really gotten the press that they deserve. Um, so when you look at the 70s black exploitation flicks, you know, kind of Jim Kelly kind of represented that, that era. And for a lot of us, that was our first real introduction to black martial arts. But, you know, there's a lot more. So delve into it and check it out uh, and support those brothers. All right. All right. I don't know why I left that one there. All right. Yeah. Back to some of the mind blowing stuff. This is an article that you can find on MSN.com entitled Ariel Robinson tweeted about white privilege before killing daughter. So just so you can get clear on what you're seeing. Right. This is a black family. 
uh, and they adopted, even though they already had two boys, they adopted three white children, two boys and a little girl, right? And apparently, uh, and I'd never heard of this particular show, but Worst Cooks in America winner, Arielle Robinson, who has been charged with beating her adopted white daughter to death, tweeted about her three white children's privilege after adopting them to complete her family. Robinson, 29, and her husband, Jerry, 34, are both in jail on suspicion of beating their adopted three-year-old daughter, Victoria, to death on January 14th at their home in Simpsonville, South Carolina. The black couple had two biological sons. In February 2020, they adopted three white children, Victoria and her two biological brothers. It's unclear why Victoria and her brothers were put up for adoption, yet on social media, uh, uh, Robinson gushed that they completed her family and allowed her to teach all of her children equality by parenting them the same way despite their different races. But on January 14th, the couple called 911 to report that Victoria was unresponsive. She later died in, in the hospital and doctors gave uh, blunt force trauma as the cause. It's unclear why the children went to live with the Robinsons rather than with any biological relatives, but police uh, are yet to provide a motive for the suspected abuse, she was taken to the hospital and pronounced dead. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And terribly sad. Um, you know, but again, these are the kind of things we're looking at right now. These are the kind of issues. These are the kind of circumstances. And um, people are doing just horrendous things for incomprehensible, you know, reasons, you know, um, and I can't say why I have no inside knowledge on this inside information beyond what's been reported. Right. Um, but I'm, I'm truly sad for this little girl, uh, because there's nothing at, at, you know, this age, you can tell me somebody does to deserve to be killed, uh, arbitrarily like this. So, um, <clears throat> but like I said, this is the kind of thing that's been going on and it's happening. Um, and again, there's not a, a critical eye on this, you know, so black men, you know, you, you pretty much cross the street wrong. You, you'll be in the newspaper, but when it comes to women and girls as a whole, or well, women really is a whole different question about what gets acknowledged, why, you know, so on and so forth. So um, all I can say is I'm sorry to hear about this, this little girl, um, and, you know, it's truly tragic and absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. All right. This is another piece you can find on heavy.com. There's a couple websites carrying it. Georgia teacher Amelia Ressler masturbated on video in front of kids. Yeah, I'm going to let that I'm gonna let that really just kind of sink in. Right masturbated on video in front of kids. Wrestler is a Georgia woman accused of 19 counts of child molestation after police say she filmed herself masturbating in front of a class of elementary school students while working as a substitute teacher. 30-year-old wrestler was arrested on February 5th, uh, 2021. The Carroll County Sheriff's uh, Office said in a press release, wrestler was a substitute teacher at Mount Zion Elementary School in Carrollton, Georgia. According to the sheriff's office, investigators were notified about allegations of misconduct by a substitute teacher and learned that wrestler uh, engaged in indecent and immoral acts while in the presence of school-aged children is being charged with what I mentioned earlier. 
wrestler was seen on video touching herself inappropriately inappropriately in front of a second grade class. Carroll County Communication Director Ashley Holsey told CBS class was being held in person, not over Zoom uh, or on another video platform. It appears she was masturbating while the classroom was full of kids. We obtained video evidence because she videoed it herself and disseminated it and we were able to get a hold of the evidence. Uh, apparently, she posted a 13-second masturbation video on Snapchat that led to her arrest. Um, shit. Uh, the exposure claimed to have seen the video and shared information about it. Uh, I guess the exposure is a media source. The Georgia-based social media page posted a screenshot of the video showing a person they say is wrestler wearing leggings with her feet on the desk. Another screenshot shows what appears to be her hand in a mitten between her legs really this 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 is what's happening really masturbating in a second grade class y'all look yeah ab in front of a second grade class <laughs> I, 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 hey I, that's all the information I got. Y'all explain it to me if you can. But this is the kind of crap that's going on now. So 19 counts of um, child molestation. Yeah. All right. Now, democracynow.org recently did a piece uh, entitled The Assassination of Fred Hampton. New documents reveal involvement of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. All right. Um, newly unearthed documents have shed new light on the FBI's role in the murder of 21-year-old Black Panther leader Fred Hampton on December 4, 1969, when Chicago police raided Hampton's apartment and shot and killed him in his bed, along with fellow Black Panther leader Mark Clark. Uh, authorities initially claimed the Panthers had opened fire on the police who were there to serve a search warrant for weapons, but if evidence later emerged that told a different story. The FBI, the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, and the Chicago police had, a, had conspired to assassinate Fred Hampton. FBI memos and reports obtained by historian and writer Aaron Leonard now show that senior FBI officials played key roles in planning the raid and the subsequent cover-up. It was approved at the highest level, says attorney Jeff Haas. We also speak with attorney Flint Taylor. Both are with the People's Law Office and were the lead lawyers in a landmark civil rights case over the deaths of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. This was released this month, um, and it is a few days before, as many of you know, the uh, film directed by Shaka King entitled Judas and the Black Messiah airs. I believe that airs Friday, um, you know, fraught with a little bit of controversy in terms of, you know, um, the representation of the actors, the chosen story, but I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know uh, how much... Uh, critiques of the film have merit to what degree i'm not sure yet um but you know they're coming to the table with new evidence that shows what many of us already knew right so if you haven't looked into the life of fred hampton please do so and i will tell you if nothing else this well i won't say if nothing else the brother was brilliant period but if you don't get anything else from watching his story one thing you will walk away with is a disbelief that this brother was 21 he definitely had an old soul and was brilliant, you know, a brilliant speaker, 
uh, an organizer um, and activist in regard to his work with the Panther Party. Uh, so definitely check out the story of Fred Hampton. Um, I can't say much about Judas and the Black Messiah as a film, but I can say the life of Fred Hampton is definitely an important one to study and to know about. Uh, and if you can get hold of, I think there was a documentary released about the FBI and the killing of Fred Hampton years ago. Uh, if you can get hold of that, check it out. You know, I haven't even looked on YouTube. It might even be there, but check it out if you can. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, look into that support, uh, what you, what you can in regard to Fred Hampton and, and actually engage what he's actually talking about in question to what extent what he's talking about has changed in 2021. That's an interesting quiz, right? All right. Smoking Joe. This is from WashingtonPost.com. CBO reports find $15 minimum wage would cost jobs, but lower poverty. The existing federal minimum, minimum wage of $7.25 an hour has not changed since 2009 and remains below historic levels when adjusted for inflation. Raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour would significantly reduce poverty and increase earnings for millions of low-wage workers while adding to the federal deficit and cutting overall employment, according to a new study uh, from the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. The report is sure to animate the already heated debate over whether to include raising the federal minimum wage in legislation to help the sputtering economic recovery and aid vaccine discrimination. Uh, I'm sorry, discrimination. Wow. Distribution. All right. I don't know where that came from. Anyway. Uh, the White House proposal would raise the minimum wage from its current levels of $7.25 to $15 with increases of approximately $1.50 every year for five years. On one hand, CBO estimated that raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour by 2025 would cost 1.4 million jobs and increase the deficit by uh, $54 billion over 10 years. But it's also estimated that policy would lift 900,000 people out of poverty and raise income for $17 million about one in 10 workers. Another 10 million who have wages just above the amount could potentially see increases as well, right? So this debate, which is a very old one, right? Because the counter argument is if you do that, mom and pop businesses are going to suffer. And then of course the economy is going to uh, adapt and it, it's, you know, everything's going to, everybody's going to raise prices and the $15 is going to be the same as the 725. So let's not bother doing it. These these kind of games cost people, cost people, right? But especially if you relate it to this next piece, which um, gives us a little bit of context for what we're looking at right now. So this piece here is uh, an article that uh, I found on kitchenfunwithmythreesons.com. I uh, appreciate that. Thanks for joining infamous chilling, uh, becoming a new member. Um, so kitchen fun with my three sons.com. Uh, basically this is an article entitled Walmart store switches to self checkout only. So basically what's happening is you got stores like Walmart and Kroger's contemplating, right? Whether or not to, uh, to go to this full time, right? Whether or not they are going to go to uh, basically whole stores with um, self checkouts. All right, appreciate that support there. I said it. Um, appreciate that. So, 
Fayetteville, Arkansas is doing a new test for its Walmart. They'll only be having self-checkouts at their store, no cashiers. This is a new experiment for them to see what works better. If all goes well and the test is successful, then Walmart will do the same thing in more locations and across the country. And they list the pros and cons. So, you know, pros, of course, is that uh, it's supposed to be cost efficient. They said one report found that checking someone into their flight at the airport with, with a cashier costs $3. If the person checks themselves in, it's about 14 cents. So, you know, from the company's vantage point, they've been trying to push this one for years to let automation completely take over. The negatives they point out, of course, are that uh, a lot of customers are actually against it, um, you know, because they feel like they have to do the work and they're not getting either. Uh, others find the machines too difficult, especially the elderly. Um, and then, of course, with all the technical problems, you end up asking for help anyway. Uh, but they've reduced their staff tremendously when they get a chance to do this. But to do so, particularly during the pandemic, is the issue at hand. Right? I mean, automation is an issue anyway, regardless. But when you factor in the pandemic, what a lot of companies, and I think I reported on this before, appreciate the support, Sage. Um, a lot of companies are figuring out how much more cost effective it is to work, uh, to automate, to work online, to automate, to cut back on uh, direct contact. Um, they're figuring it out, right? They've always kind of known it, but now they, had an they got an opportunity to delve into it in a way that uh, saves them a bunch of money, but of course costs jobs. Uh, brand, appreciate that support. Now you could you could see the logic for it, right? And of course the pandemic gave them the excuse to do it, but the question is how many of those jobs will be available once the pandemic is clear? A lot of these changes are permanent. You know, a lot of different companies, them going, you know, them being able to automate is a permanent shift and it's causing millions uh, to lose jobs and be out of the workforce. You know, and I think uh, groups that are already vulnerable to being out of the workforce, of course, are the ones that are going to be impacted the most. You know, and, and Sister Warrior makes an excellent point. She says the alleged lower operation costs are never reflected in lower prices. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. It's not. This is something that primarily benefits companies uh, and costs workers options. And of course, that makes it harder for everyday people to actually support themselves. So when you talk about this issue of moving to minimum wage that I brought up before, uh, you have to couch it against automation and what's happening in these companies. Because to cut back to minimum wage for jobs that are no longer available, what does that actually mean? All right. Uh, so yeah, and, and when we talk about black men, we're definitely talking about one of the most vulnerable populations in regard to employment. Yeah. So keep that in mind, um, uh, put that into context for yourself and figure out what you want to advocate for politically, uh, as, as this impacts people on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I don't know how many of you saw this one, but this was real interesting. This is uh, uh, it, apparently on allaboutlaughs.com. Title of the article is Stephanie Mills. Uh, Sage, appreciate the support again. Um, yeah, Stephanie Mills calls for R. Kelly's ex-wife to be locked up with him. Claims the wife knew what was going on. I ain't heard from Stephanie Mills in a while. I really wasn't expecting that. 
but she came out pretty strong and she didn't limit it to just r kelly the article actually starts starts out with her talking about uh her and michael jackson it says with all the drama and controversy surrounding a few major african-american entertainers mills spoke up in an interview with the root uh documentaries uh, devoted to exposing and or tearing down the likes of r kelly michael jackson and others have been released in recent years and we talked about this last year this is a money grab in my assessment uh, where denigrating black men for cash was a quick and easy way to go and people didn't have a problem with it right uh so uh that said jackson and mills shared a special relationship as they once briefly dated she said i love michael stephanie said in a 2016 interview with closer weekly we dated for about a year and a year and a half back in the day he was the sweetest most compassionate most loving person very soft-spoken very humble when asked by the root if she would watch the hbo leaving Neverland documentary, Mill stated that she won't be watching it because he didn't do those things. Uh, they said he uh, was already clear. He went to court. So why are they doing it? It's purely to make money. So I will not be watching it because I don't believe any of that's true. I know for a fact it's not true. Then she says, however, when it comes to R. Kelly, she has a different opinion. I believe that R. Kelly should go to jail for what he's done. Uh, while she feels that he should pay for his crime, she doesn't think it's mute. his music should be muted. She says him writing his music has nothing to do with that. Him being an entertainer and a star, she said. And those parents bringing those children to the show and then allowing him, I have a son, and she it, it cuts that way, and then allowing him, and it cuts to, I have a son, there's no way I could take my son to a Bruno Mars show and say, okay, Bruno, you can mentor my son. I'm going to let him stay with you. She says there's no way. Uh, the singer does uh, feel like the buck shouldn't stop at just R. Kelly as it pertains to his crimes. She said, and I also believe that the handlers and his ex and his ex-wife and all of that um, need to go to jail, too. She says, you cannot tell me that you live in a house with a man and you don't know what he's you don't know what's going on. That's not true. I don't believe that she should go to jail, too. And so should the handlers that helped him. Yeah, she's uh, Stephanie Mills ain't no joke. Um, so she came with it recently. Um, Lisa Ray had similar statements to make in regard to R. Kelly and even Bill Cosby. So it's interesting to see uh, you have some of these uh, celebrities coming out and saying things that uh, a couple of years ago might have gotten them canceled. Right. Um, so there's that, you know, not an interesting enough just to bring up because I was surprised it even happened. Right. Um, but nonetheless, that's what it is. So you can check that out if you so please. And look at Stephanie Mills and what she has to say about that. Now, y'all know, whenever I have a white woman on the screen looking like a mugshot, which I believe this is what it is, you know, it's, it's, you generally know what the subject matter is about. So I will go ahead and confirm for you. This is longcrime.com. Middle school teacher sexually abused 15-year-old in two-year relationship. And the quotes were theirs, not mine. Middle school uh, teacher in Okaloosa County, Florida, allegedly abused a 15-year-old uh, by starting a sexual relationship with the minor. Right? Uh, Haley Hallmark, 35, has been arrested. The defendant was described as not only a teacher, but a coach at Ruckel Middle School in the city of Niceville. Uh, deputies claim the so-called relationship stretched out for about two more years from August 2018 when the victim was 15 to August 2020. Uh, 
Kadash, appreciate the support. Um, you know, to 2020, the interaction between adult and child allegedly started with texting, moved into sexting, then became physical. Authorities said this landed on their radar after the teenager told a teacher at Niceville High on Thursday. This got relayed to the school resource officer. From there, it was pretty much a beeline uh, to Hallmark getting put on an administrative leave that same day and then arrested Friday. Hallmark is charged with lewd and <laughs> with lewd conduct with a student by an authority figure. It's unclear if she has an attorney in this matter. I can't tell y'all how many people I hear from that tell me that this should be different for female aggressors because 15 year old boys are basically men. So it should be okay. And yet if I told you a story about a 35 year old male teacher and a 15 year old student having a two year sexual relationship, there's no question he needs to go to jail in most people's minds. There's no question he's guilty. There's no question that he violated innocence, but when it comes to males, you know, boys and men, not limited to children. There's no problem. All of a sudden, their victimization is not victimization, right? They're 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 just you know walking penises that should be available to be used at the discretion that uh, anybody wants to use it for. Okay? Well, I shouldn't even say anyone because if this was a gay male teacher who had violated a young boy, I think there'd still be outrage because at the end of the, at the end of the day, the aggressor is still a man. But there's an obliviousness to how this is regarded in mainstream uh, pop culture in, in some respects. Because it, it, you don't really see a lot of these. I mean, these cases are getting reported on, but they're not really being put on major platforms and given a lot of attention. And I damn near have gotten to a point where I can see I'm reporting on them every week. These are not isolated incidents by any measure. Right. These things are going on on a consistent basis. And the lives of these boys you know, being impacted, nobody cares about, right? But this is what it is now. And it's ridiculous. And it's not uh, ending there, right? This particular article is about a New Jersey substitute teacher charged with sexually assaulting 15-year-old student. Seems that 15-year-olds are in vogue. Appreciate the support, Drake. Um... And now that I have a 15-year-old in my house, this is particularly... Eh. Anyway, um, Willingboro Township, New Jersey, a New Jersey substitute has been arrested and charged with sexually assaulting uh, or charged with sexual assault for having a sexual relationship with a student. Now, you see this? You see this? Sexual relationship, had sex with. What's the terminology used when it's a male aggressor? There's none of this lightweight language. Nobody calls it a relationship. When you got a 40-year-old man and a 13-year-old girl, nobody. Nobody calls it a relationship. Nobody says they had sex. It's none of this genteel language. He's a rapist. It's in the title. He's going to jail. That's it. But we don't do that. We, we, we do not know how to account for female acts of evil. We really don't. Yet again, another story. She had a sexual relationship. Now, they put that in quotes. Camila Kareem, 41, of Willingboro uh, Township, was arrested and charged with second-degree sexual assault and second-degree endangering the welfare of a child on Wednesday. Right? Prosecutors say uh, Kareem worked as a substitute teacher at the alternative school at Bookbinder on various dates between November 2019 and March 2020. 
Kareem had a sexual relationship, yet again in quotes, with a 15-year-old student who attended the school that involved multiple meetups outside the school, prosecutor said, without providing additional details. This is on um, radio.com. Yeah. What's up, Grinch? Good to see you. Um, yeah, man, this is this is this is ridiculous. Yet par for the course. Right. Yet again, we'll see how much attention that gets. This one, this is interesting. This is interesting. It's uh, this is an article um, uh, from AtlantaBlackStar.com. Says you have no idea how hard it is. Uh, Black Louisiana deputy uh, left haunting video message about police brutality, uh, racist policing before taking his own life. Clyde Kerr III, a 43-year-old Lafayette Parish chef, uh, Sheriff's deputy, left haunting messages on social media about police brutality and the difficulty of reconciling his identity as a Black man with his profession before he took his own life on Monday, February 1st, outside of the Sheriff's office. He says, you have no idea how hard it is to put on a uniform, to put a uniform on this day and age with everything that's going on. Uh, Kerr, a father and military veteran, began uh, serving with the sheriff's office in June of 2015. He was served as a deputy on patrol, or he has served as a deputy on patrol, a member of the SWAT team and a school resource officer in the Southern Louisiana district. In videos that have uh, gained thousands of views since his death, Kerr spoke to the camera about police brutality against black people and racism within police divisions. He said he no longer wanted to serve a department that did not care about people who looked like him said, I've had enough of all this nonsense, subservience of serving a system that does not give a damn about me or people like me. Um, Kerr said he can no longer abide by the killing that's going on, especially by the police, which I am. All right. As a matter of fact, um, I'm going to play a little bit of it here. January 31st. A little bit after 1.30. Last Sunday. So, um, here's what it is. I uh, was uh, kind of hoping to see the Super Bowl. Uh, this one especially because we got two uh, Purple Knights actually playing against each other. Mr. Uh, Tyron Matthews and Leonard Fournette. Hope y'all go forth and conquer and, um, you know, I uh, don't think it's happenstance uh, sense of, of serving a system that does not give a damn about me or people like me or um, I mean just for my life in general and uh, this is my statement if, if this isn't something to state that uh, this killing that's going on especially by the police which I am I can't abide by this no more. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not having anything to do with this nonsense anymore. Um, call me what you want. Try to discredit me. I have been a stellar, stellar deputy in this five plus years that I've been there. My last email has been uh, sent. It's copied to somebody. I can't be discredited. Never so much as a one writer for maybe some reports being late. 
None whatsoever. So it's not it can't be said that uh you know I was um a shammer or anything like that or I, I wasn't pulling my weight. And um, just for contextual purposes, I just want y'all to understand where what I'm coming from. It's my entire life has been in, 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 in service of other people. And it's just dawned on me that this time as of now needs to be seized because you don't really give a damn about us. That is the truth. That is the truth. So you can find that uh, online, apparently, uh, that was released, like I said, before he took his life. Um, you know, and he says at a different point um, that he says, my entire life has been in the service of other people. Y'all entrust me to safeguard your little ones, your small ones. Thing that's uh, the, things, uh, the thing that's most precious to you, and I did that well. I passed security clearance in the military, but that has allowed me to see the inner workings of things. So check that out on AtlantaBlackStar.com. Um, we've seen cases where black male police officers have taken their own lives in the past or at least uh, engaged in a line of action that they knew would end in their own deaths while speaking out on the corruption uh, in many police departments uh, in, in terms of how black men are perceived and treated. So uh, check that story out for yourself um, and come to your own conclusions. Nevertheless, um, you know, peace to him and his family. That's all I can really say. Uh, this one on hollywoodreporter.com. Interesting story. Um, at uh, the new Marvel Studios film Blade, the Vampire Slayer has found its new writer, right? Uh, Stacey Osei Kufour, a playwright who acted as a story editor and writer on HBO's acclaimed limited series Watchmen, has been tapped to pin the script for the feature reboot of Marvel's vampire hunting franchise. She'll be the first Black female scribe to write a Marvel movie. Nia DaCosta, working on Captain Marvel 2, is Marvel's first Black woman director. All right. So, you know, I did a, I did a review of Watchmen, um, and basically... You know, we saw all the kind of gynocentric problems with the script, with the story, uh, where you, you definitely alongside, you know, the kind of centric. See, this is the problem. It's not it's not a woman character or hero or, or uh, uh, a protagonist. that's the problem. It's with that is the coupling with that of, um, you know, this kind of misandry, this uh, this basic idea. Right. That black males are lesser beings. So in a nutshell, what I'm saying is. The difficulty I have with all of these different shows and movies and scripts is not that they're centering black women to tell stories, but that they're centering them and purposely, right, uh, dismissing, undermining and emasculating black men. The two don't necessarily have to go together. You can have a story with a black female protagonist that doesn't have to be a denigrating misandrous trope in regard to how it treats black men in the story. And yet they always go hand in hand. Right. We definitely saw it with Watchmen we're more than likely going to see it with Blade. I would love to be wrong. I mean, Blade was one of my favorite characters, especially after Wesley Snipes, um, who doesn't get enough credit for really kicking off this whole comic book genre, him and Michael Jai White. And yet you really rarely seen them do anything since this genre kicked into overdrive. Both of those brothers should have been leading men in, the, in, in this comic industry, but they haven't been. And it's ridiculous. But that said, uh, much like coming to America too, I think we're going to see a dinosaur-centric revisioning 
of Blade, you know, and I think we're going to see it. Uh, I think we're already seeing it in terms of who's being tapped to pin the story. You know, so I'm hoping that Artisan will will jump into this one uh, when he gets to it, if he hasn't already. Um, so, but nonetheless, you know, when these kind of reports come out, I just like to put them on the table and say, yeah, well, here we go. And so when the film comes out, if we see that it's, you know, it's kind of what we, what we've been seeing, we know why, right? So this, this idea, this, and this is one of the things that, yeah, I don't know if you guys remember when I played the interview with uh, Chadwick Boseman's brother, not long after Chadwick passed, and they asked him what his concerns were, and he was kind of speaking for himself and his brother. He said the concern was really how they were treating Black men, right? Replacing them with Black female characters, and, and really also coupling it with this Black female superiority trope. Right. Whether it comes down to martial arts, whether it comes down to academics, whether it comes down to STEM, you know, in these stories, you have a subtle, you know, kind of consistent and persistent idea that men across the board, but especially black men are lesser beings, less capable, less intelligent. The butt of the joke, uh, you know, uh, dismissible, uh, you know, you name it, disposable, interchangeable. Uh, the difference in the black community, however, from other communities that, is that we see that interchangeability and disposability uh, every day in real life. It's not limited to the screen, but it nonetheless is something that is happening on the screen. And um, interesting how few people are actually even talking about it in any kind of public setting. So um, and, and, and more to the point, we see a little more of that in the next piece. Right. This is corporate.comcast.com. As you can see the title, Honoring Black Women, Comcast NBC Universal celebrates Black History Month and the contributions of Black women. Uh, and this year they talk about they're going to focus on honoring, honoring the groundbreaking contributions and accomplishments of Black women. Despite longstanding challenges, Black women have remained the progressive backbone of major social movements, uh, leading innovation across industries and achieving historic firsts. And they go on from there, right? So Black History Month to Women's you know, Month, March, we're basically uh, seeing a drawback on, on, on the presence of men and the importance of them, but let alone Black men for that matter. Well, the reason I also pulled this piece, not only does it kind of relate to the last piece in a particular way, where we're seeing this cross the board kind of centering of women and girls uh, and a dismissal of already ignored men and boys in many instances, this one comes with a dollar amount, right? It says in June, 2020, Comcast chairman and CEO, Brian L. Roberts announced a multi-year plan to allocate 100 million to fight the injustice and inequality against any race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, or ability. 100 million, right? Huh. We've made considerable progress progress toward this goal, investing uh, in initiatives that address racial inequities, using our platforms and resources to address digital equality and education issues and disparities, and elevating Black-owned businesses. Through Comcast Rise, an initiative created to empower small businesses, um, specifically those owned by Black, Indigenous, uh, and people of color uh, affected by the COVID-19 crisis, we have awarded more than 700 Black entrepreneurs with marketing and technology resources our work is ongoing, but this month we'll be announcing the next phase of RISE featuring new monetary grant opportunities for BIPOC business owners. Now, look, I've said this since last year, particularly 
in regard to resources extended in, during COVID. One of the things I said was, we're seeing resources disseminated on the basis of race, like this one, on the basis of gender, and on the basis of you know race and gender as it applies to Black women. We have rarely seen anything disseminated particularly for Black males. And yet, when we refer to the data on a number of different fronts, and we'll talk about this soon, Black men are at the bottom, even beneath Black women, on so many different metrics. Yet, I really haven't... I haven't seen any serious attempt to extend any resources. And the thing about it is, most Black men don't expect it. We're used to it. But... I think the issue here, and I called this, I called it a form of anti-Black misandry, and I, I specifically named it as a form of social gentrification. What this kind of thing does when you finance one aspect of a community from outside, right, while ignoring another, what you essentially do is create a buffer class. And that buffer class is awarded for kind of detaching itself from its moorings within the community. Now, you do that for a couple of decades and what you end up with, especially if you do it along gender lines, is a longstanding discussion about why exactly, um, you know, women can't find dates, they can't find husbands. We're gonna ignore the fact that the men have been drastically underemployed and undereducated in relation to them. As I've reported, you know, I've done the analysis myself, 1976 to now, black men have literally half the degrees black women do. And you'll seldom hear that even from people whose jobs it is to deal with this data. They won't point it out that way. They'll show you by year. We'll look at the rates black men are going to school. No, 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 no. Let's get to the bottom. We have half the degrees black women. do. We've not been the target, right? And I'm not suggesting that being the target is some kind of solution in and of itself. But I am saying when you have alien resources, and no, I'm not talking sci-fi, when resources from outside of the community designating which aspect of the community they want to support, it creates a new class group, a new designation. And I would argue since the 1980s, that has been Black women. We haven't even talked about the impact of, um, you know, uh, uh, oh goodness, I was just talking about this a little earlier. My pill just kicked in, you know, my pain pill is kicking in. So yeah, getting a little loopy. But anyway, when you talk about double minority status and affirmative action, the targeting of Black women because they satisfy multiple uh, uh, multiple categories, uh, the preferencing in terms of hiring them, and hell, the extent to which affirmative action prioritized women in general. White women receive the bulk of the, the lion's share of the benefits to that. A program that was initially thought to target men so that they could actually restore families, instead it targeted women, and women actually began to conceptualize family without men. From that point, we, post-1980s, we really just became semen donors. You can always look at the marriage rates if you don't want to believe me. You can look at the family structure. Um, yeah, we're in relationships. More black men are married than black women. But for the most part, when you look across the board in terms of childbirth, uh, we're up near 80% being to single mothers. It, it, the family in and of itself is no longer really conceptualized with uh, the man present. Seems to be the case. So when you look at things like this, the investments being made on material grounds, right? Resources, dollars, targeting most particularly black women owned businesses. I would like to see the data in terms of, you know, these 700 black entrepreneurs they supported. 
Um, and I'm not going to argue that none of them were men, but I am going to say that you have these kind of programs coupled with programs targeting women, even though black women were deemed very recently in the last couple of years, not only the group most uh, enrolled in higher education, but also the fastest group expanding on building their own businesses in terms of entrepreneurship. We know 99% of those businesses have one employee, but when you can get a cash capital injection from corporations and yet there's nothing earmarked for black men, what is the long-term impact of that on the community and the family, especially during COVID? A $50,000 injection into a small mom and pop business is a huge deal, especially when black men can't find any capital support at all. And we generally don't have an inheritance. Appreciate that, Jedi. Right? This has a huge impact on the long term. And I've been saying this for the last year, trying to beat the drum around the extent to which these alien uh, you know, forces are impacting black communities in ways that I don't think we're really paying attention to. You know, I don't think we are. But even when black men voice it, it's still a problem. It's still a problem. How do I know? Well, somebody voiced a few things not long ago. Right? This is off of AtlantaBlackStar.com as well. Title of the article is Ice Cube Reveals he will meet with President Biden about his contract with Black America. Remember when everybody, well, see, I didn't even say everybody. Remember when there were specific groups of Black women that were calling him a Tom because he was supposedly in talks with Donald Trump. Basically, he's continuing with what he said then. He said, I put together a plan, consulted people who know more than me, put it out there. Uh, Illuminati appreciate the support. said, I put it out there and basically extended it to both parties. One party uh, responded, you know, right away. Another party said, we'll get back at you after the election. That's what he said. Then all of a sudden he became a Trump supporter. There were memes with him wearing MAGA hats and all kinds of... So here we go. Cube claimed last week that the Biden administration administration contacted him for meeting um, about his contract with Black America, which he has proffered to both parties. Cube revealed the news on Ryan Cameron's um, Magic ATL radio show in February. Um, to the Biden administration kept its promise to collaborate with Cube after the election. Um, let's see here. Has the Biden administration reached out to you? One asked, and he said yesterday they reached out to me, although he cautioned that everything is still in the preliminary stages and any date for a meeting uh, hasn't been set. He says, I believe it'll go down sometime this month. I'm going to make myself available. Whenever they're ready, I'm in. I'm hoping everything will be positive. Cube also said he wants to bring in some of his own experts and specialists for a face-to-face meeting should the sit-down be an in-person encounter. Yeah. So he's basically following through on what he said he was going to do in the beginning. And I haven't heard much blowback now that he's sitting down with Biden, but for some reason, he was the worst person in the world when he was going to sit down with the sitting president. Here's the thing. It's not a, it's not about, you know, him or anyone else supporting one party against another. At some point, we have to become politically mature, which means that our votes have to count for something that we have already pre-decided uh, it should go for. In other words, we need to have a list of clear cut, you know, issues that we need met. 
And we need to put that list out to those who are in a position. And if they want our votes, that list needs to be met. It's a very simple framework. But when you cuss out the men who participate in this discussion, uh, what exactly does that accomplish? I mean, I'm glad to see him continuing this because had he put his through his hands up and said, all right, forget it. I don't know if I would I, I would have been disappointed, but I couldn't be mad at him because he got so much blowback. And most particularly from black women on the left who argued, uh, you know, all kinds of I mean, you all saw the interview he did with Vivica Fox and the whole group over there and the whole question about whether or not he had earmarked enough for black women's issues, but he didn't differentiate by gender at all. And he could have. I got enough issues for him for on black men if we're really going to do that. But he didn't. He left it open and dealt with the black community as a whole and still got attacked for it. So um, y'all let me know. Is he still a Tom? Are people still saying that? What are y'all saying? You know, here's what it is. So I shout out the brother for um, his discipline and his willingness to speak to the issues that need to be acknowledged um, and hopefully some attention to, you know, problems black, the black community has and him being undeterred by people that wanted to dismiss him on the grounds of him not including a feminist agenda necessarily. So shout out to him in regard to that. And it's much appreciated. Um, and I hope he continues. All right. So we're going to transition a little bit. Um, and I'm going to ask you to support uh, a colleague of mine uh, who has, uh, you know, basically initiated uh, a push to create a documentary that is much needed. Check it out. I told you to do Biden. Now we done lost a damn vote. We done lost a vote. That's going to go to Trump. God damn. I mean, when you when you mention black people, you mentioning black women. So oh, don't count yourself no, out. That's you not true. So support that. Uh, that's being initiated by my brother, Green Gorilla. Support his channel. Go over and check him out on YouTube, doing some powerful work. He, he even went on earlier today, as a matter of fact. Uh, so definitely support uh, his videos, but also support the push to develop this much-needed documentary that actually puts the concerns of uh, Black men into a coherent, cogent structure that we can watch and, and disseminate, where people can actually see what we're talking about. Uh, so please make sure you do so. Uh, it's much needed, but also I want you guys to also support the Institute for Black Male Studies, right? I've been doing some inter interviews recently uh, with a number of different people. I got a couple other interviews uh, in the hopper that I'm going to put out. Um, so, you know, look forward to that. I think you'll enjoy 
some of the things I have coming out. Uh, but also there's still classes being taught. There's still, uh, you know, uh, different kinds of presentations being made available. So the price range is from free to, um, you know, what I think is a, a, a reasonable price for an actual 16-week course. You can go to the Institute for Studies.com to check that out directly. And you can also support, you know, by purchasing purchasing merchandise, right? So this is one of the, the uh, recent uh, sh shirts in the merchandise uh, store. And so if you go to the website, you can check that out and you can support uh, through those means. Uh, this is our Sacred Black Masculine uh, shirt. There are a number of different designs for this. This is the latest one that just came out a couple of days ago. So um, please make sure you support um, because it's due. It's necessary. And I think uh, it, a, a place where Black men can actually you know, provide research and data uh, uh, to explain their positions, to analyze the Black male condition uh, is important. It is not funded by any major institution. It is primarily funded by me and donors. So please uh, extend your resources, help out. Uh, there's no major backing for this. And part of the reason for that is to make sure that the voices can remain independent and do not have to rely on a structure that punishes them if, there's, if they say something that is not considered um, popularly acceptable. So the Institute for Black Male Studies, again, is a, a standalone institution. It's not tied to anything. Uh, or any major other institution. And it is a space where we can actually engage the field of black male studies on its own terms and unbowed, right? Unapologetic for um, it, it, its position and what's going on with it, right? So make sure you do. So y'all know the deal, right? So this was the, the topic for tonight, uh, black male justice advocacy, intimate partner violence, respect, and black men's new rules. Right? What does that mean? There's a lot going on there. Right? A lot going on. Earlier today, I saw a video. Uh, shout out to Kevin Samuels. He actually shouted me out in the video. He also shouted me out in his video on uh, No Jumper. Um, and he talked about some of the things I've been saying, uh, you know, that tend to go on in my classroom or in society. You know, But this particular interview that came out earlier today, he was talking to a woman. Uh, I think she was about 40. And, you know, it, she actually called to, you know, called in to agree with him on what he does on a lot of his work. But then she went into this interesting zone of talking about black men as um, violent, abusive. And she was talking about the ways in which younger generations of black women, younger than her mother and her grandmother, she was saying, uh, do not have to deal, do not have to confine themselves to dealing with, you know, abusive, problematic Black men the way their mothers and grandmothers had to. Um, Kevin rightly challenged that. He rightly challenged that assessment, and he asked her where she got her data from. She couldn't say. If anything, she said, you always on that data stuff, you know. And it's important to be on that data stuff. The reason being, we've seen decades of assessing Black men based on anecdote based on opinion, based on personal stories. And I'm not talking about just in media or among the populace. I'm talking about amongst academics. I'm talking at academic conferences. I have seen presentations with seven to eight PhDs on a stage talking about black males, none of them referencing data, none of them referencing charts, none of them referencing anything citable, 
they're talking about personal experiences with one black boy or black man. And that's somehow serving as evidence for how black men act. Again, this is amongst the intelligentsia, right? This is what I've seen. And it's time that we actually, you know, critically engage these things and take it to another le level. Right, Sir Anthony, they hate the data stuff. The reason they hate the data stuff is it, re it requires that you actually be accountable to something. Now, here's the thing. Uh, you know, when you're data driven, it often means that you're learning something every time you engage the data. And, and sometimes it goes against what you believe to be happening. The question is, once you, you know, are able to fully kind of research something that you've come across, can you accept it and fit it into your paradigm? Or do you deny it outright? Well, part of the problem we've had is especially in gender studies, right? These fields that engage, and it's not limited to gender studies because gender studies is kind of a, a, a transdisciplinary, you know, you know, kind of field. So um, most of the gender studies courses I had in undergrad through grad school, they weren't technically supposed to be. They were lit classes. They were whatever, you know, they were they they were classes that were made into gender studies courses by gender studies uh, uh, faculty, right? And the problem with that was that they had a one-way uh, kind of approach to teaching those courses, much of which had to depend, had to do with depending on um, strictly black feminist narratives about black men. No data, no citations, no statistics, just opinions. Like reading a bell hooks book and looking for a, a footnote, not happening. And that's somehow acceptable when it comes to that. But when you actually begin to challenge that and push back on it, and you're actually using data to make the argument, now all of a sudden data is a problem. Data is dismissible. It's a problem. But the reason men, you know black male studies scholars are using data is because if we just get up and start you know talking about our experiences with women, the first thing we're going to hear is, well, that's just your experience. Really? Well, I can sit up here and say how many black men I've met that have had the same experiences, but that wouldn't be received well either. It would just be dismissed as my own personal dysfunction. And rightly so. If all I can say is me and my boys had these experiences, what are you supposed to do with that? Okay, well, me and my, my boys or me and my girls had different experiences. Now what? And so we just, you know, standing there looking at each other. This is where, you know, actually referencing information becomes useful. And so Kev rightly pushed back against this narrative. And it was the same narrative we've been hearing since the early 80s. You know, that's become um, really kind of the programming of what it means to be, um, yeah, anyway, I won't even look. So the point being, he challenged it, uh, rightly so, and raised a number of questions. And, and the focus of the conversation really kind of fixated on abuse. And her notion was that abuse was the primary issue that Black women in the past had to deal with that they no longer really have to deal with because they have jobs they, that their mothers and grandmothers didn't have and so on and so forth. So there's a degree of independence that liberates them from being stuck uh, in, you know, being uh, stuck in, in the hands of, of black males who only want to beat and abuse them. Right. And so from there, now this was something that I was going to play. I was going to uh, do this whole show on earlier anyway, because I, I saw this last week and my good brother, attorney Dennis Sperling did a piece on it with somebody like this somebody so that's disrespectful you know what i'm saying you see what i'm saying 
This the type of shit you got to deal with, man, when a motherfucker work hard every motherfucking day. I work hard every day. I go to every work motherfucking every day. day. Okay, so I, you know, I'm going to cut it, to cut the, uh, the, the uh, sound in relation to, uh, you know, the cussing. But you can kind of see what we're looking at here. 324 watching. Um, please, again, like, share, subscribe, join, become a member of the channel, uh, support the channel. Uh, support uh, with a, a donation, if you will. All right. But anyway, so here you have a, a young couple. The uncle is driving the car, right? The young male, the uncle of the gentleman sitting in the passenger seat, right, has been assaulted by his girlfriend sitting in the back. He's bleeding. His uncle is driving the car. And even his uncle, see, I said this earlier, we got a problem with assessing female acts of, of evil, aggression, so on and so forth. We don't know how to do it. So the uncle is saying, well, you know, you guys are both you know, wrong, both a problem. There's only one person sitting there bleeding. And it got to the point where, as you can see, he's recording the incident, which is smart, right? He's recording what's going on. She's in the backseat showing out. She's still touching him. She's still yelling at him. She's, look at that. He's not touching her. It got to the point where he had to get out the car and ask somebody else to call the police because he was using his phone to record what was going on. In case you didn't know, this is abuse. This is what's referred to as intimate partner violence. And yet, the popular narrative is only black women suffer from this in the black community. When I show black men that suffer from it, you know, even other men will turn the critique on him. Well, he shouldn't have picked her. He should have known she was abusive when he first saw her. He should have done this and he should have done that. But strangely enough, when the situation is reversed, imagine him sitting in the back seat talking mess and his girlfriend in the passenger seat bleeding. And I wonder, would her aunt driving the car simply simply say, well, you know, you guys are both kind of a problem. Or would she be driving him to the police station? Black men themselves often don't know how to advocate for other black men. What we know how to do is turn the critique inward and then change the discussion. So in other words, what we've learned, having been socialized primarily by women, I've said this before, from birth, you take someone that's decided to go to grad school, they're going to go to school all the way through. From birth to grad school, the majority of the teachers you know, the caregivers, they're primarily women. And we're going to act like that has nothing to do with how men even define masculinity, define who they are. We learn how to extend a certain type of chivalry as a feature of our gender identification. Part of being a heterosexual black male is measuring your value based on how much you extend to women and girls. It is what it is. But the problem is when women and girls are aggressors, we don't know how to categorize that. So what do we do? We critique other men who are being abused, even if it's ourselves, and we point out what he should have done differently. And that's where it ends. And I don't mind that we do that to an extent where we acknowledge what we can do better. But if that's the end of the discussion, we clearly have a problem. We clearly have a problem. And I've shown you article after article of women in, engaging in acts of aggression. And are they sentenced the same as men in those situations? Hell no. They don't even give as, get as much attention for it. So here we are watching a video of a man who's actively bleeding. 
and he's and he's clearly frustrated. But here's the thing. Again, he understands that if he it just turns around and deals with her the way she's dealing with him or the way he would deal with another man, more than likely, he more than understands he'd be on his way to jail. And this is acceptable. And the way she's acting, again, is based on policy. We're going to talk a lot about that. See, my argument is that much of this has been instigated by policy over the decades. When you know you can act this way, and one, most men around you aren't going to put hands on you. Two, you know your word will be believed far more readily than his. You know what this does. It gives an undue amount of power to someone who's apt to abuse it. Are we going to act like power is not abused? It most certainly is. This is abuse right here, not of just him, but of, of power, because she knows he's not going to put hands on her. She knows his uncle's not going to put hands on her. She knows the police are more than likely not going to arrest her. I mean, I've reported to you cases on men being shot by their wives and the women were out of jail before the man actually healed from the bullet wound. This is normal and standard at this point. He got out the car just now. There's blood all over his shirt. So, you know, if you want to sit here and tell me, and I've had people do it. I've had academics do it. Tell me that men can't be abused. That men can't be hurt. I've had everyday brothers say, well, you know, men can't be abused because I wouldn't take it. I'm 200 and something pounds. I'll do this. That don't have nothing to do with having a, boil, a, a pot of hot boiling water poured on you when you sleep. It don't have nothing to do with your food being poisoned. It doesn't have nothing to do with you being hit with an inanimate object that has just become animate, thrown at your head. Or in an instance like this, strictly having hands put on you because she knows she can. But of course, the primary response to this that I hear most, most particularly from women, is I wonder what he did. Now, the I wonder what he did wouldn't be a problem if that's how it was actually worded, but it's not. It's not a question. It's a statement. He did something to deserve that. That's really what I hear most. He cheated on her as if somehow that's an acceptable response. If every man responded the way she did to infidelity. You're talking about hospitals being overrun from COVID. The fact is that the abuse is, is actually pretty low. When you're talking about men, but I know that's not how, what we've been conditioned to believe. I mean, we've been conditioned to believe that, you know, men are, 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 are just monsters across the board and that anything they do um, is thus monstrous. So let's talk about it. Let's look at a couple of things as we lead up to this category that I'm, I know this is a lot to take in, but I'm going to, I'm going to go through it. All right. We're talking about intimate partner violence in the United States. Yeah, Barry, he did. Um, yeah, uh, Dennis Sperling did actually say the, uh, that, you know, legally speaking, you are allowed to use reasonable force to protect yourself. And that's coming from a black attorney. If you haven't seen that video, go on to attorney Dennis Sperling's channel on YouTube um, and go check it out. I think it was a few days ago. It may have been last week, but uh, you'll know it when you see it, especially if you've seen the video clip I just played, right? But nonetheless, let's go through it. So we're talking about intimate partner violence in the U.S., right? 
says, in fact, from 1976 to 1985, this is coming from a blog piece that I wrote um, a while back. It's on my um, my blog site, newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. And uh, in it, I was talking about abuse. I think this was the actual piece where I was responding to all of that crap about um, uh, white men being, uh, black men being the white men of the black community. This is the, That's where the title that Green Gorillas documentary comes from. Um, but anyway, so I respond, I said, in fact, from 1976 to 1985, black men were more likely than black women to be victims of domestic violence. That comes from the uh, fact sheet, Intimate Partner Violence in the African-American Community, uh, from the Institute on Domestic Violence in the African-American Community, University of Minnesota, right? And, and, and then from there, it says, most victims, approximately 93% of black victims were victimized by black offenders. That came from Shannon Catalano's Intimate Partner Violence in the United States, um, piece in the Office of Justice Programs, Bureau of Justice Statistics, 2007, right? Uh, so she says most victims, approximately 93% of black victims were victimized um, by black offenders. This goes for men and women. Violence, in fact, is bi-directional and nigh equal and in, and many in many studies, I think should say. Shaped by poverty, drugs, alcohol, et cetera, violence is statistically more significant in poor areas and diminishes dramatically when income improves. That said, poor black people's intimate partner homicide deaths aren't significantly different. Different. Hence, Gaudier and Bankston's 2004 found that, and Bankston, found that of those homicides that contribute to the SROK, the SROK for whites was 30 and for blacks was 92. In the other words, in other words, for intimate partner homicide occurrences in white couples, the female was the offender in 30 instances for every 100 male instances in the black and, and in black couples, the female was the offender in 92 instances for every hundred instances, right? So essentially what we're talking about in terms of intimate partner violence is that it is bi-directional. It is almost equal. And again, remember, black men have not been conditioned for the last 50 years to report themselves as victims. See, that's saying, when you talk about intimate partner violence, abuse across the board, when this, when feminists initiated this, it wasn't something that women readily took to. It actually took time and effort to explain to women uh, what it meant to be a, a victim of uh, abuse, domestic uh, abuse, and condition them to seeing themselves as being abused. And I'm talking about those who are actually who were actually abused. They themselves had to be conditioned into understanding what abuse was. It was a process. It didn't happen overnight. It really didn't. Feminists began to push for policy, but everyday women didn't necessarily resonate with it. It took time. And then it took films and television shows and pamphlets and information on web. It took all of these things over decades to teach women and men and children, for that matter, to teach society how to identify abuse. The major problem was that we only taught society how to identify abuse as it pertained to women and girls. Which is why we, there's a cognitive dissonance that seems to occur when black males are victimized, particularly by older women, when prisoners are victimized, especially by female guards, or when grown men are victimized in the video, like in the video we just saw, there is a cognitive break because we don't know how to interpret it. We know it's abuse, but it's not really consistent with decades of films and television shows and animated series and professors giving presentation after presentation about how much abuse women take. We do not do that for men and boys. Ergo, it doesn't happen. 
it doesn't exist. And even when we're staring at it, it must be something else. We literally reinterpret the importance of the act when it's male victims. And then we got to a point where we started to develop a movement where we dismissed victimhood altogether. Now, on one end, that sounds great. But what happens when it's true? We're contributing to a narrative that doesn't allow us to even perceive male the reality of what men actually suffer from. And I'm not even talking just about abuse. We can talk about so many different measures. But anyway, I'll keep it on this for now. Let's talk about let's talk about homicide. Right. Use the National Violent Death Reporting System. Right. You look at the participating states as they report data on homicide by race, by gender. Going back to 2003, all the way up to 2015, I put this in a blog a couple of years ago to show you the number of deaths. And the reason I did it is because Dr. Tommy Curry was doing an interview on Yvette Carnell's show. And in the comment section of that interview, somebody remarked, that black men were killing black women in mass. Now, this is very reminiscent of the woman that Kev, Kevin Samuels interviewed earlier today. The argument was it was an accepted truth that black men were murdering black women in mass. And one of the major issues that black women have to deal with in terms of oppression is, you know, black male initiated intimate partner violence. This became the rationale for. Uh, the argument that black men benefited from patriarchy. The argument was that they could abuse a woman and be and, and not really be punished, which was absolutely ridiculous because you've never met a black man that that if the police were called, all of a sudden the cops didn't really feel like coming to get him. Are you serious? There, are, I, I can't think of any crimes that black men can get away with readily and not be arrested for. We're hyper arrested for anything. I've seen black men go to jail over over uh, uh, crossing the street, jaywalking. Really? Somehow we benefit from patriot. Anyway, so the argument was we kill black women in mass. We abuse them and kill them in mass. And ergo, their independence and support from the state is necessary to keep them from us. Let's look at the data. What do you see? In 2003, 57 black female victims, 22 black male victims. Now let's stop right there for a second. Sounds like a lot. Right. This is nationally and against the population of eh, 43 million black folk. Still sound like it's in mass to you. Hmm. 2004, 97 black females, 43 black males. And we go on and we come forward. 2015, 78 black female victims, 94 black male victims. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we calculate this against a larger population, a 43 million person population, this is infinitesimal. This isn't even a fraction. As a colleague of mine once stated, sociologist, says, as a colleague once told me, you're more likely to die in a flood or be struck by lightning than to be killed by an intimate partner in the black community. So I just told you that the violence 
was bi-directional. The deaths are too. So even when you see like in, you know, um, in, uh, if we go 2010, I'm just picking a year, 60 black female victims, 36 black male victims, measure that 60 and 36 against 43 million. But see, the, 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 really the propaganda that was, that, that was, that became fashionable in the 1980s. Now, it, it, it was a variation on a propaganda about black men that had been going on for decades and generations, really. But it reached a crescendo in the 80s and it became very particularly uh, directed at black men in a different way than before. See, before, when black men were denigrated, post-slavery especially, they were considered a sexual threat to white women. Right? They were considered uh, maybe a physical threat to white men. But to black women, black women and men were conceptualized as the same group. Then you get to the 1980s and all of a sudden they're not. They're not. All of a sudden they're not. Something else is going on. And I'm trying to keep my cool, but I really want you to look at that. Right? The reason I want you to look at it is because we need to put this into the popular discussion. Black men are not the monsters that we've been created to be in the popular imagine in popular imagination. This is what Dr. Tommy Curry refers to as the subculture of violence theory, right? And this is basically, and we had him on my show last year. This is what he talked about, right? He talked about how he actually identified the scholars in the 1960s and 70s who propagated without using any type of data, these perspectives on black male abusers and you know those who proffer violence. And then he actually identified the moment where black feminists began to quote and cite from those scholars who did not use any documentation. And as opposed to the tradition of black female scholars, black women scholars who normally would have questioned that kind of data these, this particular group, right, initially being a fairly small and obscure group, but popularized in mainstream culture by the likes of Oprah and Terry McMillan, their talking points have become. See, this is one thing you'll notice in the Kevin interview. She identifies herself as not being a feminist, but that's actually what happened in the 80s. You had this obscure kind of radical, and I don't mean radical in a positive way at all, right? This kind of obscure, radical type of black feminism that denigrated black men and saw black men as monsters on par with white society, meaning that black male abusers and killers were somehow as rampant as the impact of white supremacy. This is why you could have the color purple where you don't have any white folk in it except for the man delivering mail. There's no reference to slavery really. And somehow Mr. is worse than white society, right? This rich man it, during what, the early part of the 20th century in a two-story house, Owns his own. I'd start cussing. Anyway, so that said, as you look at this, and you start to think about the impact of these ideas, right? The ideas coming out in the early 1980s, appropriated by this particular group of feminists. And if you really want to know the details of that, go back and look at last the last interview I did. I think it was in the fall with Dr. Tommy Curry, where he talks about it, and he actually gave a paper on it, right? University of Edinburgh. 
and he talked about it in LinkedIn. So he brought the paper to my show and we looked at it and he talked about identifying the actual people who appropriated these arguments and put them into the mainstream as if they were somehow real. And so now you have 40 year old college degree black women. And I've heard this and didn't take Kevin's show for me to see it standing up to say, yes, black men are monsters. They're abusers. You know, we're better off alone. We're better off not dealing with them. We're better off. And this is really what we see in popular culture. We're better off just linking with other black women. I don't even mean that in a sexual way, just, you know, the relationships with other black women or what's going to redeem us because our men are monsters. You looking at the data. What do you see? Again, against 43 million black folk. in mass but that's you know that's one of the tells when you look at, at propaganda you can tell when it doesn't require data she when he asked her for data she didn't have any there was nothing she could think of nothing she could reference not even a documentary just nothing now the issue with that i have with how black men are perceived and treated doesn't limit itself to just that this is a uh, from a recent uh, uh website um i was sent Boys are boys can be princesses too. Uh, I think that was actually the website too. I normally put it in here. Oh, there it is. Yeah, boys can be princesses too.com. That's what this is. All right. Boys can be princesses too project is a collaboration between photographer Kitty Wolf and Chicago based children's party company Princess Capades Princess Parties. It is a series of photos of little boys dressed as their favorite princesses together with their favorite princesses. The photos might the photos highlight the pure happiness and joy the boys feel when wearing a dress and serve as a reminder that our own hangups, assumptions, and judgments should never get in the way of a child's innocent enjoyment and imaginative fun. This project is designed to show support for kids and parents of kids that choose to play as princesses, no matter their gender, and perhaps show the world it's okay to play as whoever you want, even if it's a boy in a ball gown. Now, this is clearly based on the Disney phenomenon, right? Disney princesses. They've been popular since the 1940s. Let me ask you a question. How many black princes do you guys remember? Anybody? <sighs> Technically speaking, the first black prince you saw was in an Avengers movie just so happened to be owned by Disney. Chadwick Boseman playing T'Challa as a full-grown man. He's not chasing a princess per se, although there were, yeah, he kind of was in the movie that they finally did, but not really. Anyway, my point being, Chadwick Boseman, first black prince you saw in a Disney film. And I really don't technically count it because it wasn't marketed as such. I mean, the only time you realize that he was the Disney's first black prince is when someone told you. You didn't have to realize that when we saw the princess and the frog, that the first, you know, uh, black, you know, kind of quasi princess character in a Disney film. You didn't have to you didn't have to be told this is the first black girl princess. It it wasn't something you had to be told, you know, you didn't have to see that. But when it came to a black male prince, which is interesting because all those films where there was a Native American princess or whatever, you got to see different kinds of men in different positions. Never seen a black one. 
So somehow we're going to get boys can be princesses before we even get a damn prince. I don't disagree, Sister Warrior, that Disney is a perversion anyway, but at the end of the day, as a parent, one of the things I've noticed is that when these kind of ventures come out, they have an impact on your child, often beyond what you're able to keep up with as an individual parent or in a couple. My son was four when his mother passed away, so I'm raising him myself. I am competing with every source of media, even the other kids at school. It is hard to compete with. So when I look at this kind of dynamic and I think about the socialization of boys, as I pointed out to you, at home, they're primarily socialized by women in single parent households. At school, where 90% of the women are teachers, uh, women are, uh, women, uh, 90% of the teachers are women, right? What did the gentleman say when I shouted him out in terms of black men teach? Only 2% of teachers are black men. And that follows through in college and graduate school. Majority of, you know, majority of the faculty are women. This has, a this plays a role. See, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to say that it has an impact on boys because that would problematize women in some way. And that's just, you can't do that. You can't bring critique to women. You can't raise questions about whether having a predominantly female you know, environment has any kind of impact on black boys, that might be a problem. You can't even raise the question without being accused of being sexist, misogynist, whatever. But if it is a predominantly male environment, then the question becomes how soon can we democratize this space so it's inherently just? But you can't ask that question for women. So when we look at our boys and we look at how they're socialized, and it even applies to our girls, right? You got grown women who really don't know how to interact with men. And now that they're seeing a frustration that's been building up in men for decades being publicly articulated, they further don't know how to deal with it. But what happens when it's your own son? What happens when he starts to get frustrated, but he can't articulate why? Hell, what happens when he does learn how to articulate why? Can you handle it? We're talking about spaces like this. Spaces that don't even question if this may have a negative impact on a young boy. I had a conversation years ago. I was working at a center in Philadelphia and my job, you know, was I I taught a GED course for um, young boys who were court ordered to be in my class. That was the only way they could escape the uh, the ranch, you know, the boys' ranch they were on. They had to they had to you know finish their GED, and if they didn't complete it in time, they had to go back. But one boy, one one young man brought his little brother in. His little brother was probably like eight. We used to see him around a lot, and he didn't have a whole lot of men around him. So I remember I was sitting there, and one day he actually approached me, and he says, "I think I'm gay." I just kind of looked at him and I was like, okay, what makes you think you're gay? He said, well, I started touching myself. I said, okay. He said, now I thought about my friend. I said, your friend who? He said, my, you know, I forget the boy's name. Let's call him Fred. He said, I, was, I, was, I thought of my friend Fred. I said, okay. 
I said, did the thought of your friend Fred's, you know, did it stimulate you? Did it make you feel good? He was like, no. I said, were you touching yourself before you thought of Fred? He said, yeah. Did it feel good? He said, yeah. I said, well, what brought the thought of Fred? He said, I don't know. I said, okay. Do you think of anything else? He was like, well, I thought about um, uh, playing. I forget what they were playing at his school. I know when I was a kid, it was like, you know, um, what's that called? We played dodge. What did you just say? Dodgeball. It was like the equivalent of that. He was like, well, I thought about playing dodgeball. And then I thought about what I was going to eat next. And I thought about my friend Fred. Now he's saying these things in relation to what he was actually thinking while he was touching himself. And he concluded that he must be gay because his friend Fred popped into his head, but he wasn't stimulated by the thought. Now, the reason I'm bringing that up is to say this. I don't know if you remembered, but again, when I played the clip, the young man who is, you know, uh, initiated the program, Black Men Teach, one of the kids asked him while he was teaching a science class, out of nowhere, had nothing to do with the class, do you put sugar on your chili? And he laughed and said, no, I don't. These are kids. Their minds are all over the place. But he was making a judgment about his sexuality based on a random occurrence and what he was told from others that he's supposed to be. And what my point here is that him having a man to ask the question to meant more to him than I fathomed in that moment. Because he didn't know. And I told him, you know, look, your mind, you're a growing young man. Your mind is going to be all over the place on all, for all kinds of reasons. Just slow down. I didn't tell him he was or he wasn't gay. I said, just slow down on that and give it. And, and over time, he would come talk to me occasionally. Turned out that wasn't really something that he was interested in. In effect, he didn't identify as gay. Wasn't It was just a random thought, but he had completely fixated on what he must be based on what others told him. So my point in this is that at the end of the day, if you don't have men around to be present and to engage young boys, especially if they're in spaces where they're measured, their value is measured based on how much they can act like girls. And let's not pretend that that doesn't happen. From learning styles in the classroom to who's actually doing the teaching and leading in the particular you know environment that you're in, it's socialized around girls. And if boys are measured against girls and, and, and awarded the more they act in such fashion and then punished based on how much they act really like boys, what, what else are young men going to learn? That being a young man is inherently a problem and should be, and should be done away with, should be dismissed. That's essentially what boys are going to learn. And that's what's been happening. And programs like this don't challenge that. In fact, they support it. They don't present these boys with a sense of what masculinity actually can do for them or be for them. They're not even around men in many instances to even identify what a man is. You know, this is the kind of thing I'm, I'm looking at and I'm just saying... At the end of the day, we actually have to begin to look at this differently. So I was, as I was thinking about this, across my mind, I was looking at the Manosphere on YouTube, and I noticed, you know, that there are a lot, a lot of different camps, right? The Black Manosphere, you have all kinds of different camps. You have Cow, you have Ibmores, 
you have SYSBM, so on and so forth. And these are not limited to YouTube. There have been men going back the last few decades who have been acting these things out, even if they've never heard these acronyms. And they range the gamut in terms of ideology. Man, I got I got boys that are hardcore Pan-African revolutionaries, black nationalists. I got boys that are diehard conservatives. They voice the same issues across the board, especially in relation to relationships, right? So that said, um, I, you know, I've known brothers who have completely abstained from dealing with women at all in any kind of intimate way. I've known brothers that looked that solely looked out of the country for mates. It, it, these things didn't take YouTube before they developed. YouTube just popularized what black men were doing because they're responding to their environment anyway. But my point is, after looking at these different camps, I was like, well, what is it that I'm proposing in this space? And what I realized I was pr proposing was for a particular type of approach to policy and politics in regard to black men, advocating for black men. Now, I initially reframed it as a, a, a black uh, male rights advocacy framework. But here's the thing. There's been an ongoing tradition of black men advocating for black men before we named it such. That's why Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X are the thumbnail for this video. There's a long tradition of black men advocating for manhood. Because here's the thing. We were barred from it. We were not considered men and in many ways still aren't. Not only in the society, but now, as the, in terms of the last 50 years, not even by our own women. We've had an uphill battle with manhood in the West. Uphill. It's been consistent. This is why, I, look, I'm not, I'm not denigrating uh, uh, men's rights activists. I'm not. But the agenda to just solely deal with this from a men's standpoint without qualifying for the legacy of race and the impact on black men's lives, I can't do it. That isn't to say I can't work in combination with MRAs to do a particular project, but what I am saying is black men need a little something different. And what I've termed that is black male justice advocacy, BMJA, it is what it is. And it taps into a long legacy of black men and the black community to the extent that, you know, there were instances when they advocated for men, especially post 1980s. But I mean, I mean, pre 1980s, excuse me. But the point I'm getting at is there is a form of advocacy for black males that needs to happen. I mean, I talk about relationships, but that's not my main platform. I only talk about it to an extent. It's not my main platform. I really don't deal with that much. I don't talk about, you know. What I talk about essentially, and it took me until very recently to acknowledge that what I'm actually talking about is policy. So when you look at the things you see on the screen right now, okay, you look at the things on the screen right now, these are all the areas that black men suffer from. So Hannibal asks, can you shrink the group too small? I'm not following the line of the, of the discussion in, um, in the chat, so I don't want to misframe what Hannibal is asking, but I think I get what he's saying and he's asking do all of these kinds of divisions can they be a problem they can it's one of the reasons i don't really deal with politics and religion as far politics in terms of ideology i don't delve into to, to it to too great a degree why because i'm not interested in separating black men mu that much more if i came out and said yes i'm a black muslim and this and i'm a democrat and this well immediately divisions 
I don't agree with Islam. I ain't going to have nothing to do with his platform. I'm not a Democrat. I don't want to have nothing to do with his platform. I'm trying to bring black men together, not separate them even further, especially on topics that we all acknowledge we're vulnerable to. And that's some of those things I've listed here. Right? Incarceration, homelessness, employment issues, or unemployment, really. Income, voter disenfranchisement, rape and sexual assault, intimate partner violence and homicide, media representation, and there are more. Plenty. These are areas that Black men are actually in worse conditions than most other groups, including Black women. But we are not allowed to talk about it in the context of Black men. We're allowed to talk about it only in the context of Blackness and only to the extent that it is something that can be transferable to the whole Black community to use, you know, to advocate for resources or whatever else. But it's seldom directed just at Black men. Hell, I remember even in grad school, when we talked about incarceration, we talked about it as a Black issue. Do you know, I never actually saw the number of Black men and women incarcerated until I had a doctorate and I was teaching. I couldn't find it because everything was related to the rates of arrest and, and all these obscure... Look, first time I actually saw... black women incarcerated. And I think at that time, it was upwards around 800,000 black men. I was like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How exactly did this just become a black issue? I don't hear that directed at other things. And y'all have seen me use this example. We talk about breast cancer in the black community. Don't nobody qualify for men and men can't get it. We don't. Hell, we don't even talk about men and prostate cancer. And the numbers are higher than women with breast cancer. We don't even talk about prostate cancer. On gendered grounds, it is either what impacts women or we talk about what impacts the community. This is what I mean by flat blackness. Other people use flat blackness in other ways. I don't disagree with the way they use it. I'm qualifying for it in a race gender context. Flat blackness in the black community has tended to mean that on gendered grounds, we can only talk about women, girls, and LGBT. Heterosexual males are irrelevant, even when the the subject matter overwhelmingly applies to them. We have no frame of reference for how it impacts them. We have the same cognitive dissonance we have when it comes to seeing male victimization. We don't know where to place it. So if we acknowledge it at all, it's on a lower level of attention. Lower level of severity, lower level of of importance. It doesn't qualify. So when I talk about black male justice advocacy, what I'm saying to you is there are a number of categories, a number of issues that we have on the table that adversely apply to black men more than other groups, even within our own community. And we need to be able to talk about it that way. We need to be able to talk about issues that impact black males Um, in a manner where we're overrepresented and actually not have to apologize for not including other groups, especially if they're not adversely impacted by it. Why is that a problem? But we've been shamed into doing this thing where, you know, and no matter what the conversation, I see this with academics a lot, right? They'll present something, data of some sort, and they have to go out their way to find the balance with, say, women, girls, whatever, you know, but and they do it in a slightly disingenuous way. You know, like uh, I saw a present presentation once where a brother was talking about police initiated homicide. Actually, I saw the same thing. Black Lives Matter did a commercial. I saw they did the same thing. So they presented four men that were killed and then they presented four women that were killed. Now, look, 
no disrespect to the families and the individuals that died at the hands of police or vigilantes across the board, regardless of gender or sexual orientation. No disrespect. All of that does need to be regarded, but we don't have to lose context to regard it. So disingenuously presenting four names of men and four names of women was was ridiculous because that's not the issue. Overwhelmingly, men die in these instances. Why is it a problem for me to say so? If two to 300 black males are killed by police every year and nine black women are, why is it a problem when I point out this is something that adversely affects black men? And how is it that academics are so shamed into this that we're afraid to say it, so we have to qualify it in these obscure little ways to not appear sexist? But it's not sexist to point out what's true. And you have no problem pointing out what's true for women and girls as long as the data applies. They are overwhelmingly. If you talk about breast cancer, going back to my example, black women are overwhelmingly the recipients of it or those who suffer from it. To deny that would be idiotic. I'm not going to hold a presentation on breast cancer and I'm going to say, look, these are the three men that died from it. And these are three women. that No. Black women disproportionately die from breast cancer compared to men. It's just a fact. Why is it a problem when we point out black men disproportionately die to prostate cancer over black women? Black women don't have a damn prostate. So that shouldn't be a problem to say if it's true. Why should it be a problem when we talk about incarceration or homelessness or unemployment? I mean, why? why? It shouldn't. So I'm creating a designation where we can. I am a black male justice advocate. I advocate for justice, not just men's rights, for justice for black men. Because our condition is not a few decades old. It is centuries old. The reality of what black men have been suffering from is much deeper than we thought. Hell, we don't even apply this retroactively in many instances. If you talk about slavery, for example, and this is one of the reasons we talk about the black male political agenda that we created here on the Onyx Report, and I posted on my blog, right? A list of agenda items that black men, and I'm going to pull it up for you guys while I'm talking. That's why one of the issues on there we talk about is uh, a designation for reparations, particularly to black men. Why? Because we know historically, black women weren't even brought over here in large numbers until about 60 years before the Civil War. Well, that's interesting. I never learned that in class, not in high school, not in college. Nobody ever told me that. They presented it as something all black people suffered from. That was just it. It was something we all suffered from. Okay, hold on. All right. All right. So, in the black male political agenda, we list a series of political ideas, suggestions. I don't want to say suggestions, but basically ideas that black men have put forth about what kinds of policies they'd like to see. Right. And it ranged from family court reform to you, you name it, law enforcement. And there are subdivisions in each of those categories with specific ideas. Right. Education, homelessness programs. Right? unemployment, right? Issues that are particularly or impact black men in a particular way, intimate partner violence, but ways that are not regarded in the mainstream, health, 
small business support, right? These are things that don't we don't have conversations about. And like, look, let me ask you. Prior to this list, how many of you saw? Take this off the screen for me. Leading up to the election of what ended up becoming Joe Biden into the presidency, how many of you saw a list of political issues as they pertain to black men written by black men for black men and presented to both parties to say, if you want our votes, black men's votes, these are the list of issues that black men have. How many of you have seen such a list in 2020? Don't worry, I'll wait. Now, I'm not going to say that there wasn't such a list ever. I ain't seen it until we wrote it. Appreciate the support, Reynolds. I'm, I'm just going to say I haven't seen it until we wrote it. Not to say one has never existed, but if it did exist, it was never popular. It was never mainstream. It was never even something disseminated amongst black men. No, we don't know how to do it. So even when Biden and, and Trump started actually circling the wagons and, and occasionally talking to black men, we didn't have any kind of framework to extend about black men's issues. We didn't. We didn't know what to say. Even though we voted to the second highest numbers in the election, we tend to do right more than anybody for Democrats, except for black women. We're the second highest in the voting number. And we never even talk about why that is. Right. Like voting voter disenfranchisement due to incarceration doesn't impact us disproportionately. We don't even talk about that. The idea is somehow black men don't support the Democrats enough. And then the argument goes even further where we saw prior to the election that black men were somehow responsible for the failure of Joe Biden before the damn election even took place. And we were such, you know, we were so irresponsible and childish. We needed to have strippers on polls to get us to to, to vote. Why? But we're voting in the second highest numbers anyway. So that aside, right, we didn't have a list of political issues, priorities, things that needed to be done in order to court our votes. We didn't have one because we'd never learned to actually conceptualize ourselves as an entity. Black women have, especially since the 1970s. They can articulate their needs in regard to race, but they can also articulate, articulate their needs in regard to being black women. Black girls, you name it, black LGBT, uh, black lesbians, they can articulate their political interests in a very detailed fashion. In effect, they speak for black men and for themselves. Leeways, appreciate the support. They can speak for black men, they can speak for black boys, they can speak for themselves, they can speak for gay black men with a disability who can't, I mean, you name it. And we sit back and, and, and we allow it to happen as if we don't have a list of concerns that women themselves would not care to voice. Trust me when I tell you this list, black male political agenda, is not something that everybody wants to talk about, but it was particularly feminist. And I didn't write it. I asked black men who watched the Onyx Report to suggest ideas based on their own life experiences. And they did. Those are the black men nobody wants to hear from, but they articulated concerns that black that are based on situations that mostly black men share, contexts that we share. So what am I saying? 
I'm saying that we need to have a category in this space that takes what we're talking about and applies it politically, applies it in a manner that impacts our lives. But I'm not denying the impact of the personal, not at all. See, when I talked about new rules in the title of this, of this presentation, what I meant by that is basically what you're seeing here with black male justice adv adv advocacy is a requirement, is a demand for respect, but it's a demand for respect on political grounds. I am also arguing that we need to demand that in our personal grounds. Attorney Dennis Sperling said something when I interviewed him last on my show a couple weeks ago. He said something that stuck with me because it had been something I'd been doing, but I never said, and he put it so clearly. He says, I have a zero tolerance for disrespect, especially in relationships. I thought that was profound. I said, well, I think it's incredibly important that black men learn to have a zero tolerance for disrespect in relationships because that's not what we were taught. We were taught to prioritize women's worldviews, feelings, perspectives, whatever she said, she has a right to say. Whatever you say that makes her uncomfortable, you're wrong about. That's what we learned. Again, being socialized by mostly women, we were taught these lessons even just on a subconscious part on their part. You know, we were just taught these things because that's how they thought. That's how they saw the world. And we absorbed it. We learned it. We learned to prioritize their voices, feelings, thoughts, and concerns. We didn't even learn whether or not we had thoughts, concerns, feelings, and observations that needed, that, that could stand apart. Not going out my way to find things that stand apart from women and girls, but the reality is we haven't learned to talk about it. It's not how we've been socialized. So when we do so, it changes the discussion. A lot of people don't want to have that happen. So I'm saying, if these issues, you know, that we're talking about from incarceration to um, intimate partner violence, if we can require respect from the state, right? Whether we're talking about from philanthropists, from institutions, if we can require that from the law, if we can stand up here and say that black men should not die arbitrarily at the hand of, hands of police because we're human beings, if we can say that to society, can we say that in our own individual lives? And see, to me, this is what black male justice adv advocacy means. It means advocating for basic level freaking respect on an individual level and on a societal level, on an institutional level, on a cultural level, in every space that black men find themselves at. Can we advocate for justice? Now, justice is at, is at the larger end of it. I'm starting this discussion with basic respect. Can you require that, black man? Black boy, if you're listening to this, can you require that your presence in people's spaces, your presence in their lives has a cost? And the cost is at least respect. That's the beginning. Justice is the end point. The beginning point is respect. Can you withdraw yourself in your, if you're in a space where you're not respected? Can you withdraw yourself from it? Do you have the testicular fortitude to do that? Can you? Can you require respect in your own space? Because you damn sure can't ask for justice if you can't even work on basic respect. But I am asking for justice. I'm asking not society. I'm asking black men. Can you stand a call for justice? 
But first, start that with your own stance for a call for damn respect. And to remove yourself from spaces where you're not. Or at the very least, set up a plan to remove yourself and set a timeline, damn it. But put yourself in a space where you don't have to. I Man, I have purged everyone from my life who cannot fathom respecting black men. I got a 15-year-old son. If they don't respect me, they damn sure ain't going to respect him. I will not any, allow anybody to disrespect me or my son. And I do this for him as much as I do it for myself. Can you? Can you require that of anybody in your space? Let alone somebody that wants you to protect and provide for them. This needs to be an agenda pushed across the board. Pushed across the board by black men. Needs to happen. And if you can't, it's already a bigger problem on the, on the in the situation than not. So that said, you know, that's what I wanted to get across today. What I am pushing for at this point is a call for black male justice advocacy, calling for black males to stand up for, to require respect and to do so unapologetically unapologetically but as usual i'm going to be opening up um the page uh, the uh the private uh, after hours show office hours for my members if you become a member of my show go to my youtube channel page click on the community tab and you will see see the link for office hours and you can come in there depending on the level of membership you've chosen you can either uh, comment in the chat or come up on the uh, on the screen and engage uh, the discussion directly. So you can look to that. If you're a Patreon supporter, the message has already been posted in Patreon. If you're a member there, you can go there and look at it. All right. But y'all know how we tend to do it. Let me get this thing here. All right. Okay, so brothers, be reminded, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, brainless henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child dis dis discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, emotional tampons, or any so other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, warriors, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.